Welcome to the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. I am your host, Jason Dubray, and we're going to be talking this show about pure 80s, I'm calling it. Movies from the 1980s that are weird and wacky, but a lot of these are popular mainstream titles that people have heard of. And another recent trend in my show is this is the third time now and twice in recent times that my guest is somebody who I'm meeting for the first time as we do the show. This is Scott Lehman, who we have a mutual friend, Larry Parsons, who I mentioned at least nine. 900 times each episode his show rank and review being a guest on that show led me to doing this podcast and you've known larry a long time as i understand it oh yeah yeah i've known him since he was little larry no he was yeah long long time Just always a good guy and uh, i know you you had a recent episode of rank and review and i think there's a lot more coming i think there's a project that you two are working on coming up something to do with guilty pleasure movies yeah, yeah, kind of working on those movies that you like, that you maybe like way too much or uh, like more than you should. I mean, uh, movies with issues, but uh, you kind of love them in spite of or because of those issues. I'm wondering if that's going to be the case with some of the movies we're talking about <laughs> it's, here. It's very well could be coming to play so, as well, yeah. So I, I hope at no point do I break your heart uh, with <laughs> my analysis of some of the movies here. But uh, I, I sent you a whole bunch of ideas and we landed on this. 80s idea so what is it about 1980s movies or this list that was interesting to you there's just something special about 80s movies maybe also because that's that's where i grew up and really became developed that love for for movies so even they just they have a different style a different feel the the storytelling and there's just a wackiness to them that that you can only get away with in the 80s certain things they just don't they just don't fly anymore you can watch one of these movies and say why is this happening and you say oh because it was the 80s oh okay well that explains everything then yeah, yeah we just dismiss it that was the 80s yeah it's well, no that's what happened in the 80s you would uh you <laughs> made people in computers and yeah i mean and especially i mean obviously i was a big uh horror fan as a as a kid as you know if you've heard me and larry talk we were young ages watching films that we were not supposed to be watching and you know it goes from the 80s horror films to the the 80s kind of you know teen comedies to um you know more adult nature comedies just just everything and it a lot of it is the nostalgia too well maybe something was really funny to you back then and maybe the humor of it doesn't really age that well but it still brings you back to oh i remember when i was 14 and i watched that and uh and it was funny then and it make you know brings back to those days but uh overall mostly it's just that that 80s feel i do kind of get attracted to that i i think i had that for comedies in the 80s because you know just my family they'd rent movies and and i would see them and there would be like these like this dream list of comedians had several movies every year in the 80s and it, there would just be one movie after another after another that i would watch and enjoy i got into horror movies more in the 90s and more okay. when i was a teenager so I, I guess i don't always have the nostalgia for them but i've gone back and I've really started to appreciate a lot of the movies the slasher movies and and they're great because you can put them on and you don't have to think too much about it in most cases so but yeah the, these movies are outrageous so i'll probably i'll just do the the blanket statement here that way we don't have to talk about it because i know larry's run into this in his show as well and i almost feel like i, I mention it in every review now and it's it's getting a bit tired about this would not be allowed in 2021 because we've become such yeah. a sensitive culture 
that I think Larry's even said on his shows, like the 80s, let's just say the 80s were homophobic and be done with it. Uh, there's, there's a lot of homophobic stuff in, in some of these movies. So that's there. There's some racial stuff, which you can't get away with now. That's there. So if you're going to be expecting a 2021 type of experience watching these movies and you're going in with your arms crossed, I think these movies are maybe not right for you, and you're not going to have a good time with them. I have to admit, though, there was at least one of these where no matter what I did, I couldn't uncross my arms. I was really trying hard to get there. but, but I, got a, I got a feeling I know what you're alluding to, and I'm sure we'll bring that up. But yeah, uh, but some, I, some moments are a bit more cringy now than others, and, and I really kind of hate that whole, oh, you can't do that now kind of idea. Yeah. And that's kind of maybe another thing I love about these old films is they're always going to be the way they are. 80s, it seemed like everything was on the table. And, and I, I don't know, maybe that makes me a bad person, I guess, but... <laughs> it doesn't. It, it doesn't because it's, you know, it's so creative. It's so much fun. And I I, I guess I, I feel like the, the bookend decades of the 70s and the 90s were so much about psychological movies and about hyper-realism. And there was some of that smattering in the 80s but that really wasn't where the focus was and where the money was i mean there was a whole lot of cocaine that went into a lot of these movies and among uh among other things and the results are like if you again if you put your brain on hold with some of them uh, quite entertaining so i i have a lot of notes which are kind of criticisms but then i'm thinking okay this is not meant to be analyzed in this way like am what was the purpose of this is this to like entertain us and to yeah put a smile on our faces or to temporarily distract us from the world and and was it successful in that regard and i i actually think most of these are at some point i think you have to decide am i going to review these with my eyes i have today or with my 1985 eyes because yeah. or is it i guess maybe some sort of combination uh, using those eyes and how does it stand up today I, I i don't think even the the one that i might have the most issues with i don't think the intention was ever to be overtly offensive or this is not this is not something that is attacking a group of people necessarily but I do feel like it's just again people are more sensitive now I don't know if it's better I I'm starting to feel like we're going too much into one direction here and we're getting rid of art and, and books and and films and yeah. tv shows and actors because of stuff that's that's come up but as far as the movie itself let's just judge it for, yeah. for what it is and I think that looking at it as far as in 1985 or 86 or 89 up to uh, Bill and Ted's what was was this entertaining and and, and does this work I didn't want to go on a big tangent about, about right. that I just wanted to get that out of the way so that we aren't don't well, get that, that's part of it that, that's part of any discussion of 80s now and I think in fairness there are some things that we have to correct now that maybe some things we're realizing this is excessively insensitive to a group of people and maybe this isn't right uh, but there is that fear of overcorrection I, I worry yeah. about you know are we going to take it too far at one point none of these movies is cannibal holocaust or something i mean it's no no i don't think not even no we're going to be okay yeah. uh, one thing i was going to mention in in the discussion of 80s and you know what i love about it so i'll be scrolling through movies online you know streaming service and you know i'll read the description of a movie looking for something i've never heard of to watch you'll I'll look at the plot summary and it sounds well that sounds kind of weird now what's the next one oh, that sounds kind of weird and stupid and like, oh wait 
great, but it was made in 1983. Okay, this is gonna be awesome. And then all of a sudden, it changes the whole perception. It's like this sounds dumb. Oh, but it's an 80s dumb. Okay, I'm into this. This would be my kind of thing. And and I, I kind of mentioned this story to you, trying to get my kids into 80s movies. Yeah. And my son was a little bit easier. He kind of got the whole uh, some something about. It. He kind of gets it. He I remember he watched a few of them. You know, he's watched Big Trouble in Little China on his own. Uh, had a good time. He watched Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Oh, yeah. Was one of his first 80s movies he watched, and he thought this looks strange, but he just, he got it instantly, and he and he loved it, and he can't wait to show all his friends when they come over. And uh, so I went on a bit of a kick. I'm showing my my daughter and my son these 80s films, and uh, the daughter just was not into them. And one night we gathered to watch The Goonies. I said, right, tonight we're watching this film called The Goonies. You guys are gonna love it. It's a fun adventure with kids. You know, they find a treasure map. But anyways, we sit down to watch, and as soon as it starts, it feels like an 80s movie. And so I'm smiling, and she has this weird unhappy look on her face and she looks at me and says dad is this another one of those stupid 80s movies at that point i press pause okay you know what you can get out of here right now <laughs> actually if you're gonna have that attitude towards because we're off to a bad start right now so and then she just kind of watched it like this like trying to hate it but she, she, uh, the arms crossed yeah it's like Mo- monster squad all these ones my son got into it she's like these are 80s movies and yeah yeah isn't it cool she's I remember this this mentality, and again, I would say the '90s were a little bit more my '80s, if you will. I'll I'll watch almost anything that came out in the the '90s. Yet it was a totally different decade. But I remember in the '90s, like, there was a thing when I was growing up. It was a little bit in the '80s too that you wouldn't watch anything in black and white because it was too old. Yeah, and you would question if a filmmaker used black and white. And yet now, I mean, once I really looked at the history of movies, and it, it works really well to have a black and white film i don't know what i just went along with it because that's what what's every everybody said then you start to think for yourself as you get older and you start to be interested or you have a group of friends who are interested in the you know the 80s and and those movies and so that maybe she'll get there someday but it might not yeah. be <laughs> probably is not right now so unfortunately because that's that, that's deflating i think as uh when you're excited about sharing a movie with with oh, your yeah. kids and, and somebody is just and i'm also a, a teacher so I don't have kids, but I, I, I'm a teacher. And so I get excited by bringing some something that I think is brilliant into the class. And they're like, that was stupid. What did that have to do with what we just read? And just those words, is this another of those stupid 80s movies? Yeah, and just a heartbreaking uh, No. I, I just don't know who her real dad is now, but she'll figure it out. I wouldn't give up, but and who knows? Maybe, maybe it just won't be her thing. The six movies that we're going to be talking about, we're going to start oh, off good. actually with Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. It couldn't be an 80s show without a Friday the 13th slasher movie. So we're actually going to look at part six, Jason Lives. Then we're going to take a look at a Martin Scorsese film. Some pretty strong filmmakers who made some of these movies. One of his lesser known films, After Hours. And then we're going to take a look at probably the least known Mad Men. Max movie, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Then John Carpenter, another big, big name. Big Trouble in Little China. And we're going to end off with John Hughes, one of the most important filmmakers of the 1980s with Weird Science. Is there anything else you'd like to say about the 80s or these movies before we get going? Nope, just be excellent to each other and party on. Now, a motion picture so grand, so magnificent, and so vast, it spans 7,000 years. No way! Yes way! But it starts with Bill. I'm Bill S. Preston! Who was Joan of Arc? And Ted. Noah's wife? We're in danger of flunking most heinously tomorrow. A force from the future. Can we go anywhere we want at any time? You can do anything you want. Is putting history at their fingertips. Let's reach out and touch someone. They're traveling through time. 
How's it going, royal ugly dudes? Put them in the iron maiden. Excellent! Execute them. Bogus. How's it going, dude? And they're making a big impression. Historical babes. Now they're home. Everybody get together, remember who your buddy is. To trash the 20th century. I've only watched, uh, shockingly enough, I've only watched Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure a few times. I've watched it. I remember it was rented for me at some point. I don't know if it was, it more likely it was probably 1990 before I saw it. And then I, I went many years without seeing it. I know there are people who watch this movie a lot, maybe on a yearly basis. It has an amazing cult following. And yeah. it's about basically two high school seniors in a small town in California. San Dimas. San Dimas, thank you. San Demas, which is a few miles from Los Angeles, and they need to pass their history class. And the only way to do this is to be this big presentation that they're supposed to do at the end of the year. And as it happens, we have glimpses into the future where the future is determined by them passing this history class because Bill and Ted are the last remnants of humanity. And basically the, the, the future world, which is a world of peace, is made up of everything that is about Bill and Ted. And so George Carlin shows up in a time machine, which is a uh, telephone booth. Yeah. And the night before this presentation is supposed to happen, they are able to go anywhere in time and they start collecting a whole series of historical figures. And then they have to gather these people together for their presentation. But once they get to L.A., they end up all over the place and there's all kinds of adventures in modern times trying to get them to this auditorium in, so that they pass. In uh, modern modern 80s times. Modern 80s <laughs> times. Of, yeah, 1989 there. Alex Winter, Keanu Reeves, anchor this film and uh, the franchise. We now have three of them. And Alex Winter's quite good. He, he kind of disappeared a little bit. He was obviously in The Lost Boys and uh, some other movies. Keanu Reeves, good Canadian, and he has a big resurgence now because of John Wick primarily. Oh, yeah. I think if you cast him right, then it can be very, very successful. If you don't cast him right, it's tough. He's very good in comedies like Bill and Ted. He's very good in action movies like John Wick, like The Matrix. And he's also surprisingly good at playing villains. There was a, a movie called The Gift, a Sam Raimi movie. Okay, yeah, kind of yeah, yeah, he's nasty in that one. Uh, he's in this movie, The Neon Demon as well. This kind of creepy hotel owner. He's very good in those types of roles. I think this, this movie, he's maybe come to terms with it in his popularity now but for a while I think he was trying to shake this character because everybody was just seeing him as this California surfer dude character yeah, um, yeah I think for a long time he was just Bill to us right he just yeah he was him. and even when he, he he performed Hamlet in in Winnipeg and the I think there's a, a line in one of his soliloquies about uh, something being excellent and apparently every night the crowd just laughed in the middle <laughs> of that moment. It wasn't the only problem he had with the run playing Hamlet there, but Shakespeare's maybe not his niche. And uh, But th there is something about Keanu Reeves. I, I'm not a Keanu Reeves hater, but again, he is limited as an actor, but he is a movie star, and I've also heard he's a, an amazingly nice guy. So Yeah, you keep hearing uh, that too. So I, I kind of used the John Wick angle to get my kids to watch this one with me. I told them it's, uh, I described it, it's, come watch a movie. It's, uh, it's like a rock and roll adventure about John Wick time traveling. And they yeah. said, fine, we'll watch it. <laughs> 
John Wick wouldn't exist. The Matrix wouldn't exist if it wasn't for this movie. This really made Keanu Reeves' career. Jump-started it, I guess. And he, and then he had Speed and he had all these other successful movies in the 90s. It, it's basically, uh, we, we saw this a lot in the 80s and it's a theme of having like these two young men. There's a lot of focus on adolescent males in the 80s. But these two guys are basically idiots, for lack of a better word. Very charming, though. And they get into this goofy comic adventure. And this is one where I think if I was like this, my arms are crossed. Yeah, I could pick out all kinds of problems with it. But they're just too darn likable to not like this movie. I mean, I, I had a good time watching it again. There's really not a mean-spirited bone in this whole movie's body. Like, no. There's no, even, there's no real villain, even. Like, everybody is kind of likable, but... Uh... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I suppose the two villains are Ken uh, Reeves' father. The guy who wants to send him off to military school if he doesn't pass his history, which adds stakes to the story. He's a little bit two-dimensional. And in a way, the history teacher, but I don't think it's on... They don't paint the history teacher in as negative a light as, say, like in, in John Hughes movies, the teachers are often uh, yeah. either clueless or really horrible people. I think this is a good teacher, and he's actually giving them a bit of a break. Yet, mm -hmm. one thing that I, I don't like about it is he's pretty much convinced that they're going to fail no matter what. We see hours before they're supposed to present, we're seeing all these other people present, and he goes down to them at the bottom of the list, and then he just writes down an F just assumes they're gonna get an F anyway so those are the closest we get to villains but these are not these aren't like super villains or no, it's it seems it's just a, it's a plot to set up 90 minutes of fun shenanigans and you know time traveling people in the wrong time fish out of water ideas yeah. and uh, for the most part I think it works uh, unlike you I, I remember I seen this in the theater when it came out and and I was one of those that we saw this a ton like we you know we'd rent it every couple whenever's but and it was a big deal like not just with, with my friend group but just everybody it was popular everyone quoted it i mean everyone was yelling party on and excellent i mean there's probably not a wayne's world no they're totally yeah they're bill and ted i mean the same party on every time but yeah it was, it was quite a big deal in pop culture uh, you know just carried these guys i kind of wish because i again i was maybe just just on the verge of becoming i was a couple years off from being a hardcore movie fan at this time uh, and i kind of wish i had been able to see it in the theaters with an audience and i i think there's just the laughter and the joy <laughs> the theater would have been infectious and then I would have have I'd have a little bit more nostalgia you just can't capture that with a, a home video rental as much it, sure. as, as enjoyable as it was and this was you know this wasn't a, an offensive movie this was a good one to show however old I was at the the time 10 11 years old when this came out it was probably the perfect one to show but I'm not sure I would have gotten everything now as an adult I just I, I just enjoy like there's some sequences I like better than others to be honest with you yeah. the whole medieval sequence is a lot of fun. I think there was potential in the West, Old West sequence, but they, I think they kind of went for, uh, it felt more like a sketch or something than it did, yeah. Old West, you know? Yeah, that one sort of stood out of being a little bit separate, almost like a, like you said, a sketch. Yeah, I feel that too, yeah. I think I was so interested because then, I mean, for time, obviously, they had to do a montage of picking up more and more historical figures and then the ridiculousness of stuffing them all into the phone booth. But yeah. there were a few of those places I just wish we could have spent some time and maybe I would have enjoyed some of those stops a little bit more than the old west sequence when they have all the places they could focus on yeah the you mentioned the medieval
evil scene. That was one where I noticed my son laughing a lot during that one too. Yeah. Yeah. And that and that's kind of fun when you're showing your kid a, a movie that you know means something to you and, and they're kind of laughing out loud because it seems like it's hard to make kids laugh out loud now. But uh, you sure. know, when, and that's when they're just doing this stuff. You know, they're just dumb dudes wearing suits of armor saying, "Oh, these are heavy, yeah, heavy metal." And he thought that was hilarious. You know, it's just simple, funny stuff. And and they're playing air guitar and having a little sword fight, pretending they're Star Wars. Like you're already carrying yeah. swords. Maybe you have to pretend they're lightsabers. But uh, but yeah, they're just goofy moments where they're two friends having fun that really they work. As far as those two actors together, they're a good pair. Uh, you know, it's relatively harmless and clean, fun. I mean, I, a personal favorite of mine was uh, Socrates. Um, yes. The way they kind of portrayed, or sorry, Socrates, I should say. Socrates, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's so much fun like, now they mispronounce all of the... <laughs> it, but I, feel like so, I feel like Socrates really liked to party. If he could <laughs> hang out a little bit longer, he'd probably really get into it. Yeah. Uh, there's a scene with like Socrates, Billy the Kid, and Freud. They're picking up young girls at the mall. At, you know... <laughs> Yes. That's how it worked for me. It was just kind of creepy as well. It is creepy, but there's creepier in the 80s for sure than that. Uh, aside from that, you know, there's funny lines like the history teacher asking who's Joan of Arc. Well, that's Noah's wife. You know, yeah, yeah, I love that just, one. Just fun cool. little jokes. I enjoyed the, uh, was it, uh, Bill's conflicted every time he talks to his hot stepmom. With that. Yeah. Hey, Missy. You, I mean, Mom. How did you feel about that that odd sequence where he goes in and has sex with his the stepmom <laughs> in his son's room? Like that. Yeah, it's it's, it's creepy. It's funny though. I mean, like just the, was, way, the way the dad closes the door slowly and here's twenty dollars. Go see a movie. You're doing it in your room, dude. So shut up, Ted. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's that's you know, one of those '80s mo moments. But uh, yeah, yeah. As, as far as how it translates as as an '80s movie itself, I think the biggest thing that stands out is a main piece of this movie being a phone booth. You just yeah. don't see a lot of phone booths now, and you might have mm -hmm. to explain to a kid what a phone booth is. Other than that, you know, the clothes are there's some cl '80s clothes. It almost is blending into the '90s. It's almost a, getting what? a little bit close to grunge. There's you know the plaid jackets tied around your waist, but but they're still wearing the half cut shirts and uh, you know the colors. A lot of music references. That you might not get if you're not a, a, a child of 80s music you know they're talking you know talking about eddie van halen and yeah. iron maiden and you know bon jovi those kind of things so, so there is definitely the uh the 80s touches there yeah you could almost have like some sort of a bibliography or something like that or a list of illusions to give to somebody who's younger watching it and it would actually be an impressive on, on the whole they, they know their history I, and <laughs> And, and used it well. The fact that like Bill and Ted don't know their history, but they just meet these meet these characters. I mean, they magically learn how to pronounce their names properly when it comes time for spoilers for the climactic presentation where they all are on stage for what seems like would be probably a three hour presentation <laughs> at that point at the end of the day. But everybody is so wrapped in in it that it's a standing ovation and everything and a clever use of that telephone box. I think you might not need to explain that one as much. If if their younger people are familiar with Doctor Who, because that was kind of a, a thing. And I don't, I, when I looked up it, initially I thought they ripped off Doctor Who, but what they were doing was they were originally going to have it in a car, but they were worried it was too close to Back to the Future. Oh, okay. Um, know that. So, so then they changed it to the telephone booth. What did you think? I, I would be remiss not to mention the great George Carlin. Interesting role for him. He's a little bit of an exposition machine, for sure. Mm -hmm. But it, I start, the movie starts with him there, and I have a smile 
smile on my face because George Carlin is there no matter yeah. what he does. So yeah, for a moment, I forgot that he was in this and I seen him and it was, oh, it's good to see George Carlin again. Yeah. Of course, he's not doing the George Carlin stuff. You know, he's not doing the seven words you can't say on television, but it's a small role. But it's, it was good to hear his voice again. I guess they were originally looking at like Sean Connery or something for that role. <laughs> Uh, somebody serious but then they somebody came up with the idea of having carlin and that yeah i, I this is very g-rated carlin this is a little bit closer to what uh, was it thomas the tank engine or what, whatever oh, yeah 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 that's right he did uh, that it was the weirdest thing that he was involved with that the guy who has had the most extreme one of the most extreme stand-up co- comedians in the history of of the art form i, I liked him i think i had a memory of him doing more for some reason maybe maybe that was connected i was getting bogus journey and excellent adventure because it'd been a while mixed together but he's there and it, I, I mean there's some really cute stuff towards the end that he has but he isn't given a whole lot to do in the movie but it's just nice to have him in it yeah and, and you know i haven't seen bogus journey for quite some time but i think think we're going to have to now because mm-hmm. after it was over my kids said they both liked it so i said well, you, maybe we'll have to watch bill and ted's bogus journey soon and then my daughter was like what they made a second one of these like not a joyous look in her face like what the hell it was a miracle they didn't make 10 of them because dad how the heck did they make two movies out of this i said honey they made three and you're right and all it kind of wraps up conveniently for everybody and tidy you know just happens to work out somehow but and i've been saying mostly nice if i had to try and find a negative i mean some of the scenes of the phone booth traveling through the cables of time the effects are not going to blow you away there's nothing special there but one thing that sticks out to me was there's an extended scene of uh, napoleon of course uh, napoleon they leave in the 80s and they go back to pick up more historical figures and uh, his Ted's little brother has to babysit him like it's like it's ET or something. They take him out and they teach him about ice cream and bowling and everything and they lose him. And there's a scene with Napoleon at a water park that goes on for too long. It's about three yeah. minutes if I have just Napoleon going down water slides and it was funny for about 20 seconds because yeah. it's, like, it's Napoleon he's having fun but it continued on a little bit too long I felt if I had to find a scene that's, that's the one where it just felt like this was a commercial for an actual water park that maybe gave them money for the production and said, here, here's some money if you show how great our water slides are. Because they mentioned that water park like three times in the movie too. Because this is an actual town, so maybe that's the, the feature of the town was the water park <laughs> that time. Yeah, and we get the Waterloo reference in there. All You know, there's there's a lot of, lot of stuff, but it's, I, I mean, I like the actor and the joy that he experiences when he realizes how fun it is. And, and it gets yes. so silly, he starts knocking kids out of the way so that he can go up uh, the next water slide. So I, I, I smiled during that sequence, but you're right. It's probably too much. Did you think it was too much in the mall? That's uh, the other part too. I, I love the mall, especially as it, when I first saw this, the the montage, when they play that extreme song, Play With Me, that was like the greatest song of the entire world at that point. When we heard that, we were like, oh yeah. man, that guitar is crazy. And yeah. we all looked it up and bought that album. But uh, no, the mall is fun. It's another, maybe a small thing. It's very convenient that they all get arrested at the mall. <laughs> Because maybe Genghis Khan would be arrested because he trashed the the store. And yeah, Billy the Kid shoots his gun off in the food court, I think. But other than that, why was Abraham Lincoln arrested? Because they thought he stole a beard, but it's obviously his own beard. Why was Freud arrested? Was it from hitting on the girls in the food court? I don't know. It just seemed convenient that they're all in 
something now. But um, and uh, it was it was Mozart or whatever was just playing with that that mall display with the yeah. All he's doing is drawing a crowd, listening to music. Yeah. I don't remember that standing out as a problem to me yeah. until this viewing, really, because I, I was younger before. And when you're watching a movie, I'm not critical at that age. Mm -hmm. You're just letting it happen, and it's the '80s, and uh, this is what happens. Yeah. I mean, it's an obvious setup to the crisis point that they're all in jail, and then Bill and Ted have to find some way to get them out. Plus, the father is there, and you know he's going to make it difficult. So then they have to find ways to travel. We don't really see them travel through time to set up all of these different distractions in the police station so that they can oh, right. get out. But yeah, they I, had a little bit of fun with remember to set a reminder for yourself in the future to put this here in the past, yeah. and then it just kind of you don't want to think about it too long, but if oh, didn't yeah. give you enough time to think about it, but it works if it's just quick. Yeah, time travel movies can be tough in that way, but yeah. I would say if people haven't checked out Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and you just want a comedy that is just something that is just easy to watch, you'll have a good time, it's not too deep, and then you move on, you know, especially in the tough times we've been in, it's it's nice to have some of these comedies that are actually comedies, they don't have some sort of like big serious undertone or some sort of deep political message connected to them, I mean, it, it's a lot of fun, and so this is one where there are some flaws, but I'm willing to forgive a lot of them because it's so much fun. Cards on the table, the only way that I would rig things so that this was the movie that would be leaving my movie collection is the fact that I have a DVD with a, some sort of a scratch in it where there's this one point where it's skipping, but that has nothing to do with the quality of the movie. Just the quality of the DVD that I got at some garage sale. It's going to lose a point automatically for that. <laughs> Not so much. Yeah, good movie. Anything else you want to say about Bill and Ted? No, I think that's me. Probably hit it all. Excellent, dude. This is between me and Jason. Jason belongs in hell, and I'm gonna see he gets there. change the name ah! people want to forget this was crystal lake just because our parents keep telling us that jason was only a legend doesn't mean it wasn't true what if he did come back looking for the camp counselor that caused him to drown his wife I don't know what it was when I was little. I wasn't watching horror movies and throughout the 80s, I wasn't. I almost, they were like, I, they felt like they were wrong or forbidden or something. I think that was part of the moralistic agenda of the powers that be in the 80s. And that certainly is a factor in the movie we're talking about. So this is the sixth part of Friday the 13th called Jason Lives. And in this installment, Tommy Jarvis, uh, this is one of the, I think the only character other than Jason to appear in three of, of the films, always played by a different an actor as it, as it happens. He returns to the graveyard to make sure that Jason Voorhees is in fact dead and then accidentally brings him back to life. And then Tommy is trying to stop Jason's mindless killing and put him back where he belongs. But of course, along the way, nobody's actually believing him. They think he's A, crazy, and B, that he's probably the one who's doing the killing. This was one of several Friday the 13th movies that when the government caught on to how popular these movies 
movies were and how R-rated they were and violent, the MPAA took control and cut the guts out of so many of these. Yeah. And this one is like very, very, very short, uh, close to being a PG-13 movie. I mean, it's the only one in the series that has no nudity. It has a rather over-the-top creative sex scene, but it didn't have any nudity. It, nope. it has some decent kills, and I would say the opening is interesting, but it isn't the kind of gloves off Friday the 13th that the early ones were. And then later on, if some other, you know, late, late sequels were able to do a lot more, but I still really enjoyed it just because okay. I just don't think that it's almost a critic proof franchise. I mean, there's stuff that we can pick at here, but I think you know, there's much worse out there that you could do as far as looking for a horror movie or a slasher movie to look at. And it has a certain charm to it that a lot of horror movies, movies now don't have because it kind of like Bill and Ted's as far as what it does for comedy this isn't terribly deep it's not making a political statement it's just <laughs> Jason comes back from the dead and starts killing people and he goes back to Camp Crystal Lake this time they had children at at the camp made that difference to up the stakes but Jason is not somebody who's terribly interested in killing kids I think he's just interested in killing teenagers who are smoking pot and drinking and having sex yeah and yeah uh, well first of all, I'm glad to hear that you do like this one yeah you're going in you know where does jason stand on on horror and friday the 13th in general and of course you you know i'm i'm a horror fan and i was i was a jason guy because we would have there's group of us there was like the michael guy and the jason guy and the guy, but always loved jason and the friday the 13th series and this film is probably it's probably the the best sequel in all honesty as far as as you said it's kind of review proof but uh it's not as trashy as some of them it's kind of easy to get behind 18 there's 18 deaths in this film. If if you count Jason's face versus the boat propeller at the end, then that's uh, the 18th. Now, for a film with 18 deaths in it, you're right, it's not gratuitous. It's Aside from the first death where Jason rips somebody's heart out with his bare hand, that's really the only instance of real gore that we see. So yeah, it's it's a soft R. It, it's definitely yeah. not as, as hard as the other ones. This one's been an important Friday the 13th because it's the first film with zombie Jason. Yes. So, and that from this point on, he's risen from the dead and he can do anything and that just is a game changer because they did four movies fourth was obviously the hilariously named final chapter and uh, and they made part five which didn't include jason but people don't like that one but if you just in your head pretend it's jason it's a friday the 13th film it's it's got nudity and violence it's what you want but they said we need jason back so and there's a scene i love zombie jason myself i think cj graham does a great jason in this film he's always been one of my favorites too i remember i met him at a horror convention and he was doing photos in the Jason costume. Oh, yeah. I thought, okay, I'm, I'm doing that. And he was funny because he's just grabbing people by the scruff of the neck and putting a knife to their head. I'm trying to like not have this grin, this huge smile. <laughs> I was having too much fun. But there's a scene where he realizes now that he's risen, that he's got way more strength than he used to have. And it almost surprises him. He yeah. uh, rips somebody's arm off. But he grabs someone by the arm and throws him against a tree. Then he looks down and he realizes he's still holding the guy's severed arm. And just the way he looks down at this arm, it's like, shit, did I do that? Like it's it's different Jason now. If there's something else I could point out about this film is the humor with it. Yeah. 
it's it's not a comedy it's not even a horror comedy but it is definitely a funny horror movie mm-hmm. uh, it, it's a horror film but they're allowing you to have fun with it now uh, from the opening when you see you know Horshack is one of the guys you just can't wait isn't that a Horshack from Welcome Back Cotter but there's the James Bond style opening yeah. and it's just just little winks like that you got guys looking into the camera saying some people have a strange idea of entertainment and we yeah. know that character is talking to us and we're smiling and nodding and saying yeah yeah we do have a strange idea of entertainment the director's wife has a, a scene and quite an interesting death and in there has uh, makes this reference of this is the first time I think in the series where they see Jason standing there like I know from horror movies that somebody in a mask is not that's not a good thing let's get yeah. out of here like this is a one of the smartest people that we've encountered unfortunately it's a one scene role and her her boyfriend or whatever her husband in the scene is Tony Goldwyn in his first film and they were supposed to be kind of like the older people in charge of the, of the camp I think they were on their way two really good deaths oh, yeah. with the spear yeah I don't know how you felt about that yeah and, and no I, I did like that you're right and it's different because this one Jason is a thing from the beginning of the film where Tommy's aware of it and he's warning people uh-huh. some Friday the 13th films are kind of they are known to drag a bit I recently reviewed one uh, with, with Larry on his show you know part three where it takes about half hour 40 minutes for it to really get going I feel like this one really goes and it, it starts and it goes starts big like I, I really like that opening and the effects are quite good like when Jason's mask is off and the worms and all that crawling on yeah um, yeah, lots of lots of great detail in there. Uh, there was also supposed to be they cut it back a bit. A triple decapitation connected to that. Like I, I have some problems with that paintball sequence. It felt a little bit like filler. Like there's all these random people in the woods all the time in the movies, and just somebody for Jason to kill while the main characters get to where they have to get to for the next bit. But they worked hard on that, and they weren't able to show it in its truest form. Like the supplemental materials show you kind of a scratchy, grainy full-on take of that. Again, I think they were going for some really ambitious stuff. I think Kevin Williamson said that this movie helped inspire Scream. Oh, for sure, yeah. I can see that definitely. Uh, and you're right. And even the deleted scene of that triple decapitation is not that graphic, really. No. I mean, it's, it's a good effect, but I mean, you compare that to what's in our movie now and really it's it's a shame what we were deprived of as, <laughs> as young people of the 80s. But uh, I do really like how we're just told right away we're allowed to have fun. Yeah. It's okay to have fun during a Friday the 13th movie and from this point on it, they feel a little bit different because of all the winks and even the paintball scene just the little things like a guy shooting a paintball at Jason and it explodes on his chest and he looks down at it for a second and, yeah. you know the people with the paintball putting headbands on that say dead just marking them as dead right before they will be there's I kind of there's 10, 10 dead bodies a half hour into this movie and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and you're right if you're going to be oh, like yeah. uh, do the old Joe Bob thing 10 dead bodies 18 dead bodies no breasts you're right no nudity as well which was strange for the Friday 13th movie at that time. It was an odd moment as well. Uh, as the counselors were arriving at the camp and they're unpacking the car, they have a boom box out and they're playing the theme to Friday the 13th part six, that song by Alice Cooper, He's Back. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought it's strange that they're playing a song about Jason on their boom box while they're at the camp. But speaking of which, I love Alice Cooper and the soundtrack, yeah. having his music in there was a thrill for me too. So yeah, that was great. It would have been cool to have Alice Cooper actually in the movie because, you know, he wasn't, he shows up in Prince of Darkness. He, 
you know, he wasn't afraid to show up in some movies, but maybe that would have been a little bit too on the nose. And I think they play the song again when, I can't remember her name now, the girl, the, the, the sheriff's daughter, she goes to pick up Tommy in her car. And again, she's playing the song about Jason in their car as they're driving. Other moments, uh, there's one another one, Jason arriving at the camp finally, walking by the sign, promoting friendliness, sportsmanship, integrity, and tolerance. Uh, just little nods and winks like that are just yeah. so good yeah. in this. And like, yeah. even when there's the kids are all told to hide under the bed and they're saying, so what were you going to be when you grew up? It, it was never, I mean, there were funny moments in part four or part yeah. five, but not comedy. Not level. Yeah, there's, it's, it's different. there's the one kid who's reading No Exit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just little touches. It works. It's like, I, I guess if I was to be nitpicky about the kids, these are the greatest kids of all time for that age. Like, I did not understand why there was only the one girl was awake. Yeah. And nobody is, everybody, like, they're all listening. Nobody is, like, crying or nobody's causing a fuss. Or I guess there's those two boys that kind of have some sarcastic comments back and forth. But there really isn't. They're the most cooperative camp kids you would ever see. But that's okay. They're, they're, you know, that, that, that works for the story. So I, I don't know if having the kids there up the stakes or not like if i suppose if you hadn't watched other friday the 13th movies you might have been on the edge of your seat when he goes in and and the girl sees him and there was that trick that the one counselor gave about closing her eyes and whatever she says and then the monster disappears and that happened but again like jason would identify with kids he wouldn't be trying to kill them and so there was no real danger there i don't think but it was just another complication for the the final girl i think having said that though this is also the first time a Friday the 13th movie has taken place at a operational camp. Yes. You know, part one, it was they're getting it ready. Part two was a counselor training It's or it's teens. Having they're always trying to get it ready, yeah. This was like, okay, now we have kids here. And so it was a little bit different. And uh, going in, what are what's going to happen now? But I want to make, mention, you mentioned that girl that talks to the little girl that, that wakes up, that mm-hmm. character is Paula. Yeah. And that just I wanted to mention it because there's one way that this movie doesn't follow the Friday the 13th rules. Paula, that girl that helps the little girl that had the bad dream she's exactly the type of girl that would normally be the final survivor she's modest in her clothing she's kind she's wholesome she just finished helping a little girl who had a bad dream back to bed and even suggested she said a prayer what i do is i close my eyes and say a prayer she's telling the kid a prayer and it works she goes she does everything right everything nice and then the next scene is her death and jason seems excessively violent with this death and in fact it's always been a kill i was curious to see more of i want to see what the heck did he do to her because all you see is blood everywhere in that cabin it's on the walls it's on the ceiling it's on the popcorn on the bed there's no body there he just tore her up yeah you see it he grabs her slams the door throws her out the window he grabs her back in and but uh, yeah that was different for me i think there are examples of this throughout the series like the rule doesn't always play out that way but this is the first time in a while like i keep thinking the very first victim in the first movie was that girl she seemed pretty nice and she was in to help kids and (laughs) she was hitchhiking i didn't see her having sex smoking or drinking or whatever all those rules are but they were probably still trying to figure out what they were doing in the first movie and hadn't quite created that universe but you're right i mean i i when i watched it again i thought oh yeah yeah she she does go because the like the final character out of it's not really a final girl in this movie yeah tommy's Um, the survivor this time right he does everything. tommy and then yeah and then the the sheriff's daughter and yeah that does differ from what was done before but again 
again, I think on the whole, it works. I enjoyed it. This is the sixth chapter to a franchise, which has kind of by, been by the numbers for a while. And they added a lot new to it, I thought, and gave it a different feel. It's its, its own thing. It feels different than the other ones. If someone's just going to watch one Friday the 13th movie, I think they'd be okay watching this one and test it out, see what they think. I think this would be an okay one also to show to some younger people who are maybe not quite ready for the hard R yeah. Friday the 13th. Yeah, the set yeah. scenes can get kind of awkward sometimes uh, when you watch it with the kids but yeah. this one they're they're fully clothed yeah and i guess the director like he was asked by the producers for that woman to have to do that scene topless and she wasn't that comfortable with it and he felt awful asking but he just felt like he had to ask because that's what they were and so they didn't do it that way that was a spectacular sequence too i mean i think it was the last thing that you know the rv going off the road that's yeah, a pretty big stunt yeah big stunt for uh friday the 13th movie another creative kill and something that was a bit different than what we've seen before i'm really happy that I, I I figured you probably like all of them to a greater or lesser degree. I just wasn't sure what your feeling would be about this particular chapter. And okay. um, I think we're both in the same place. I, I think maybe I you like it a little bit more than I do. I was just, I maybe I, I was looking for the hard R and I was a little bit distracted this time by the places where quite obviously they, they pulled back or held back. But I think spinning that into a positive is a, actually a good thing. Yeah, this is this is one for the on the whole that you can you could watch and I didn't know how old your kids were when we were first first talking and then when you said the ages oh yeah they could probably watch any of the movies that we're, we're reviewing anything else you want to say about Friday the 13th part 6 Jason Lives uh, no I think I think we covered it all it's it's a good time I think people will know if this is for them or not for them beforehand this is not a new series this has been around and is very characteristic of the 80s yeah I enjoyed it quite a bit why don't you just go home I've been asking myself that one all night long so what happened? Why can't you? I met this girl tonight, okay, in a coffee shop. I feel like something incredible is really going to happen here. <laughs> so when I got home, I gave her a call. On the cab on the way down here, all my money flew out the window. I didn't really get along with her that well. What's the matter? I said, I want to see a plaster of Paris bagel and cream cheese paperweight. Now cough it up. So I left. Gigi! So I haven't got enough money to get home until I meet this bartender who wanted to lend me the money. That's all right. That's all right. Forget it. Forget it. That's all right. It's your boy. So I go back to the girl's apartment, but her roommate's really pissed off at me for the way I treated her friend. This the guy? Hi. So I march right in there to apologize. Come on. But she'd already killed herself. I was too late. Oh, wow. Lighten up. What is this? I'm in big trouble. I mean, big trouble. Now this part, you're going to say, oh, you're lying to me. Don't lie to me. But it's true. Mohawk this guy. I couldn't believe that. It's him. Tell him. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. I got to tell who you didn't do what. Help! 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 Call the police. What's with you? Are you nuts or something? <laughs> Luckily, oh, there was this girl who saw the whole thing. You're dead, pal. I'm what? So now she's the one in the Mr. Softy ice cream truck who's trying to kill me. They're all trying to kill me. I mean, I just wanted to leave. You know, my apartment, maybe meet a nice girl. And now I've got to die for it, you know? What do you want from me? What have I done? I'm just a word processor, damn it. Is that all they After hours, when anything can happen, and usually does. Is that unbelievable or what? That's all they
I don't know if I'm going to be starting off making a controversial statement here or not. You might have to bring me down to earth, but for me, After Hours is the best of the six movies that we're talking about. I love this. I think it's a gem. It's a movie that Martin Scorsese made in the middle of the 80s at a time when he was maybe thinking about quitting completely. He had had Mm -hmm. a a failed attempt at The Last Temptation of Christ, and he was brought in by, by Griffin Dunn and others to make this movie as a little bit of a, a confidence booster for him because he was he was so depressed was questioning whether he had any sort of a future in cinema and so it was, this was a little bit of a bridge to get him back to Last Temptation which got him to Goodfellas and onward and onward and we don't really think of Scorsese as a you know a, a comedic director I mean there's the king of comedy and after hours essentially but his comedy is dark and it's weird and every time I watch this it's almost like I in a delightful way I forget get all the different places it's going to and you just really cannot predict what's going to happen to this character. Uh, Griffin Dunn many people know him from an American werewolf in, in London. Yeah. Guy who gets killed early and then we get to see various versions of him as he his body decomposes and he's giving advice to his friend. You know, a very good writer in his own right. He's good friends with Carrie Fisher by the way. But he plays a, uh, a meek word processor in New York and he's a single guy eating alone in a restaurant and he meets this beautiful woman played by Rosanna Arquette and impulsively travels downtown to Soho to have a date with her. He then discovers that she has more problems than he would have imagined in a really, really bizarre scene. There's there's uh, a lot going on there. To- yeah, tons. Right? Then he gets himself out of that situation and his only $20 cash, this is a, another concept that would have to be explained to young people. It's like, well, why didn't, you know, they just... <laughs> Use his phone. Use a credit card or... uh, Uber on your phone. Use your apps. Use your phone and use your apps to try to get... That's part why 80s movies are great because cell phones ruin the storytelling. They do. Why don't you just use your cell phone? Okay, pretend it's the 80s. We don't have cell phones anymore. He's running around and he he doesn't have uh, subway fare. So he's stuck in Soho, which substitutes as... Because all Scorsese's movies are have a religious angle. It's like he's in purgatory or perhaps you could even say hell. And he can't get out and he meets some of the most wonderful colorful characters possible in this all-star cast and it's just a delight it is not perfect by any means so i don't want to oversell this and you do have to have a specific type of taste in comedies i think if you're like the more absurdist some more kind of off the wall comedy then you'll appreciate this one maybe I, I lived in new york i'm a new york type of guy so maybe part of it is understanding that world it's it's actually a section of the city i really love but it works well in this context and it, it's a lot of fun, a lot of fun. I, I had a great time revisiting it i thought maybe my first time it was kind of an exaggerated love for this movie but i think i can easily say that i love after hours so i'm hoping you had a good time with it too i don't know i i do like it it's been quite a while since i've seen it so kind of the the way i first seen it i kind of go way way back in time to when we first rented this off the shelf on a vhs copy at that point in my life at my age i didn't went i didn't rent it because it was a scorsese's film i didn't even know who he was or or aware of really care of that 
I was 13. So what I saw on the back of the cover, and the, the DVD is the same, there's a picture of Cheech and Chong on yeah. the back of it. Yeah. And I was 13, and I liked Cheech and Chong. So I thought, oh, this is going to be hilarious. Look, it's got Cheech and Chong and the funny guy from American Werewolf in London. This would be awesome. Yeah. And so we brought home a group of us, and we watched it, and we all kind of chuckled and, and got into it. But it was not at all what I wanted for that night, because oh. in my head, this is not at all a Cheech and Chong movie. So do not, not go in that no they do appear in it in a very small role very very briefly but it's it's funny if you're <laughs> if you're looking for that kind of comedy it's not it but that's what i wanted that night and so i wasn't pleased with it so yeah. i wanted to watch it again because everyone else said it was great and so i, I watched it again and said, okay now now that i know what this is i can get into it and basically it's uh i call it it's a night from hell movie mm-hmm. and I think it, that was kind of a, a genre, especially in the 80s. It seemed like there was a lot of Night from Hell movies where it's just a guy out and things get worse and worse and he gets from one situation to the next. But the thing about this one, it's a simple story about a night getting worse and worse and different situations. But the direction, the way the story is told is done with such style that it elevates a simple idea and story into so much more. And yeah. that's where it really, that's where it really wins, I think. And great cast, you mentioned. People just keep showing up and in little parts parts and they just make such a big meal out of that little part and yeah it's it's pretty great it's it's a great fun time to watch i've forgotten how much i do enjoy it yeah i mean we should do some shout outs of people some of them are kind of known only in the 80s seemed like terry gar was in every second movie in the 1980s at least every second comedy she plays this waitress in a bar who's unhappy with her life and she thinks that griffin dunn is going to be her soulmate and she wears this beehive from the 1960s john Heard is is this uh, is the owner of this bar and then of course like he's linked to this whole the whole opening to this the story and uh, he has a situation where there's this break-in and there's this whole deal that he'll give some money to griffin dunn so he can get out of the neighborhood if griffin dunn goes to his apartment to check on things and then he gets griffin dunn this mistaken for this thief that's in the neighborhood and this bizarre neighborhood watch <laughs> group that gets run by Catherine uh, O'Hara. Catherine O'Hara shows yeah. up later. She's like, great in it. Yeah. All of these women, and I'm sure there's a reason for it that he encounters during the night are they're all blondes and they, they seem like they're almost going to like lead him into some some area of security but then it, you know, it just gets worse and worse for this guy. And I didn't clock this the first time I saw it, you know, being a single guy, right? There, there are times when I will eat alone in a yeah. public place and some movies have covered this really well but I I, I thought it was handled really well because he has the book there. He's reading, but he spots the other person who's alone at the table. And then they have this great conversation. It's almost like a something out of a fantasy almost. Like, okay, the, like this might be this might be the one. And oh, I have to work tomorrow, but I have this opportunity to do this. And why not? I need to go for it. But it's a trap that gets him into this situation. And there's so many symbols, so many great things. Like the Rosanna Arquette, and she actually appears in two Scorsese movies. She's in a, a section of this New York stories as well, which in both cases, she's living in a, a studio apartment in Soho with an artist. And she's, I, I don't know, Scorsese must have seen her in this type of role. Both movies she's very good in. Yeah. But when we start to get the backstory of this character, there is this bizarre sex story which involves the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> I cannot do justice to. Yeah. If, if you hear me just mention that and that sounds interesting to you, I think 
After Hours is the movie that you need to check out. Right. If it sounds like uh, that's a little bit too weird, then maybe that's not as much your thing. I wouldn't recommend it to just anybody, I guess. She is off-putting. Like she, she tells that story, and then she also tells of the, to- the time that she got raped. And then yeah. that becomes more uncomfortable. And then she says, yeah, I was asleep the whole time. It went on for six hours. And it's, geez, what? But yeah. I... I Especially yeah. the Barquette stuff. I, I do like the way that, that stuff unfolds because Griffin Dunn's character is just getting a little bit of information and there's a mystery going on. You know, she's whispering to her roommate and you just feel on his face where he's like, I should get out of here. I should really just cut my loss. Mm-hmm. I should get out of here. But he he doesn't leave. He has those chances to just say, you know what? I got to go. I got to work in the morning. But he stays and, and we're only usually getting one side of the conversation. She had an argument with a friend or she's at a drugstore. She's got something, you know, but what, what the heck's going on? There's some burn. Or, or something, yeah. uh, but it's very uncomfortable. It is. Linda Fiorentino, who I talked about when I reviewed The Last Seduction, plays her roommate, who's this this artist. And Will Patton shows up actually as as a friend to Linda Fiorentino and Patton go off to this German nihilist club at one point that Griffin Dunn is trying to get into to to get in touch with them because of all these strange circumstances that have happened. But his timing is so bad. Like, how do you get out of this situation and then not look bad? But then he chooses the absolute worst time to escape and he probably shouldn't have escaped because what what happens everywhere he goes after that it gets worse and worse and worse and yeah and he does a lot of running too like he's running and Scorsese's a method director and he works with lots of method actors and he said to Griffin Dunn I I want you to get very little sleep while we shoot this movie I want you to have no sex and uh, there's a a key scene at the end where he goes into this club he ends up revisiting going to the same club that was like packed with people later on he goes in when it's empty and what he did Scorsese made him do this is he went to a bar that was about a block away go in and say I'm ordering drinks for everybody and everybody's cheering and they're getting their drinks and then he runs out of the bar and of course then there's danger he's going to be chased after and he has to go running for that location where he's shooting the scene so when he runs into that scene he's actually just run from skipping out on this bill somebody involved with the production would have gone in and explained it and paid the the tab or whatever but i thought it was just kind of there's all this cool stuff that they did make him look exhausted and he just said uh, leave the camera on as soon as i open the door run from there and you're right he just came back from you know running like three blocks i think something like that like uh, yeah he said this is the first movie he said where usually you you do fake running and they just fix it but he said no he wanted me to run like give her and so yeah it's it's, uh it's different that way dick miller also shows up in a coffee shop he's he's just a you know character actor you see every now and then just a familiar face and he's got the great line where it, it kind of gets the ball rolling where he says different rules apply when it gets this late it's kind of like after hours and say i ah, said the thing <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but it's almost at that point you feel like it's an it's almost a twilight zone where it's yeah. like we're in a different area now things are going to be a little bit different and and odd and, and off-putting it's a um, horror movie if you spin it a different direction kinda, yeah you know? like to me i'm laughing i'm having a good time but it's dark i mean th- there are characters who die and it's not like a fake death like there's real danger for this guy if he stays in this neighborhood he needs to find a way to get home also going back to the wizard of oz that was very intentional because wizard of oz no place like home he's trying to get home and i I feel like scorsese while he was hired on for this he wasn't originally connected to this this was a script by a columbia university film student who he did as his thesis project or something like that and then when it got produced scorsese came on but i think scorsese intentionally put a lot of that 
stuff in there just because he's Martin Scorsese and it was gonna be Tim Burton originally and Tim Burton actually they he was given the job then Scorsese came back after he last up for him, right? part and said oh could can I do this and Burton said no I'm not gonna stand in the way of Martin Scorsese like who does that I mean what <laughs> that's a, your own movie I'm doing this I mean, this wasn't Tim Burton now like or late 80s early 90s Tim Burton this would be a project that would launch his career this was years before Beetlejuice that was just amazing to me that he was willing to give up the gig so Scorsese could have this bridge project and build up his confidence again. Uh, I wrote down you know more notes about him uh, just at, well you've alluded to it before chances to get away he doesn't and there's a point where he keeps looking at his watch and you just feel that he's like yeah you know what I'm not going to get laid I got to get out of here but uh, you know, where he's, he's realizing this isn't going to happen there's something weird I'm just going to go but it takes him until he looks for that out and finally they're, they're having some pot in her bedroom mm-hmm. and he takes that as the, the moment to finally complain about the pot like, i don't even think this is real pot you're lying to me and he's like fine, i'm getting out of here and that's his time where he finally gets out but it's not the end it's things get way further out of control and by yeah. the time he meets terry gar yeah he's she starts showing interest in him and at that point he has no interest in meeting another girl he's just no i just want to use your phone and and uh, way out of here yeah like he he kind of is points where he's trying to get away from these women but he's also trying to like use them in in, in some way to to get home and maybe that's part of the sin like i've been trying to figure out what is the sin that he commits other than maybe mm-hmm. the lust he has for this woman he doesn't even know to put himself in this situation trying to deal with his his loneliness like he does his work work is kind of a lonely job bronson pinchot has a, a yeah. role at the beginning kind of being trained by griffin dunn at the beginning he doesn't really have friendships at work so mm-hmm. he's like okay he needs this human connection but this leads him into purgatory then maybe it, that's where there's some things he does which are i guess kind of not very nice you sort of understand all the decisions he makes too like you're not really faulting him for anything because you're there with him he's a likable enough character too got this job doesn't seem like a very fancy fun job and he goes home he's watching tv with the world's biggest remote control and uh, you know then before he's like he met a girl they shared an interest got a phone number you know i'll give her a call and she says come over this doesn't happen to him every night i'm gonna go and you mentioned in the prelude you kind of hinted to 80s movies and a little bit of specifically you brought homophobia and i think i'm not sure if that's homophobia in this movie but they do have a lot of gay content mm-hmm. um that you maybe don't see as much now I, yeah. i'm not sure if it, because of the location is that maybe just a soho that's just the way that district is or because there's a lot of scenes where it seems like they're really trying to make a point of it where they're uh john hurd and him are having a conversation there's two guys in leather vests making out right behind them just maybe to put you more discomfort it's, as a viewer in the 80s i don't know yeah i mean this stuff is very 80s i think maybe how it's handled would be uh that particular section of new york city has you know has been kind of a there's a, a lot of artists and homosexuals and it was a safe place probably in the 80s for those who were openly gay to to live but i, I found yes yeah, some of the characterizations were probably a little bit too stereotypical yeah the big mustache and the, I mean, the pinching I, of the nipples with the guy <laughs> the leather vest <laughs> I, i'd have to ask somebody uh who's gay how they feel about that portrayal <laughs> to get an answer that this one i, I don't know if it's autocorrect or something it didn't bother me but i do like it's it's just kind of there in the bar it's they yeah. i don't think they make too much of a meal out of that as opposed to some other movies that might have made it kind of a cheap laugh yes yeah, it's, it's not police academy going to the blue oyster club or something like that but uh, no, no, no. not quite on that level but it was just no. you know it was something that i noticed is maybe being a bit on those how did you feel again going to the end did you find the end of the film to be abrupt because this was a real struggle for scorsese and how to 
end the movie? Well, I like it better than the the original ending, where I'm sure if you've heard, it's Cheech and Chong pick him up. He's covered in plaster as a statue, and they put him in the back of a van and drive away, and credits roll, and he's off to an uncertain future as a statue. I don't know. You're right. It, the movie happens, and then it's over. He gets back to work. It, it, so it's it start. It ends right where it begins. So it goes full circle. But in the end, did it mean anything? I guess is what yeah. that end says to me. Did anybody learn anything? Was there a point, or was it just uh, wow, what a night? And now I'm at work. I will continue. And that's where I feel it's more of a purgatory than a hell because then he's doomed to repeat the same thing again. If the next time he meets a pretty girl in a restaurant, is he going to go in that direction and with the the chance it could turn into that same type of night? Uh, so I, li- I like him ending up at work at the end. I think that was a good solution. It was just so fast because it spent so much time with these situations and the dangers he's in and it felt like a quick fix and I know there were there were some wild ideas and like him actually like going and climbing into a womb and you hear about that and yeah and all kinds of out there stuff and I, I Scorsese was talking to Spielberg and he was talking to like a million different people to get ideas I like the ending enough I just feel like the the Cheech and Chong breaking in getting him out of there and then speeding along and not latching the back of their van appropriately enough was kind of an easy way to to get him out of this hell I'm not sure if he completely earned it or not he, he was respectful to that older woman maybe that was part of the lesson there after treating the the other women kind of like what can you do for me yeah, maybe I Again, let's think a little bit deeply about this. But yeah, I, I, I think it's also entertaining. I, it's not not some three-hour, like it's not one of Scorsese's heavy, heavy movies. I think there's a lot of fun in it. And again, just not knowing from scene to scene what I was going to get. Yeah, it, yeah. it's entertaining. And, he, and you're right, you don't know what to expect because nothing, you can't predict any of this stuff that happens. Like when he goes into the girl's apartment and she's gagged and she's tied to a, a pole and he goes to untie her and who did this to you? And it hurts her boyfriend or whatever. He's right there and this is oh the heck did i walk in on but and i said before the the movie is so much more than what it is because of the direction i mean there's there's smart camera tricks you know just yeah. nice zooms and, and the sounds and think that ticking of a clock you just hear every now and then just the loud ticking leads to these transitions and it just heightens the tension in the scene so well i love that i think the last thing i would point out as far as me is it's a good movie i wouldn't even say this is an 80s movie i would say this was a movie which was made in the 80s yes I mean, like it, it does doesn't stand out as an 80s film. You know, there's nothing glaring as far as wardrobe or music or or, or anything that way. It's yeah. just a well-told story that, that's filmed in the 80s. So I don't think if anyone has a love or a hate for the 80s, I don't think that'll affect their enjoyment of this film. Yeah. And I, I tend to have, like, one of these doesn't belong in all of my shows. That just seems to happen. I'm not sure it was intentional or subconscious or what, but this is probably the one that which of these doesn't belong of the six we're talking about. So maybe it's unfair, but... I just love this movie, but I think you brought up some points to kind of bring me down to earth. I think there's a few <laughs> things which, I mean, I, I did have in there about some transitions are a little bit convenient. And Scorsese has this weird cameo where he's operating spotlight in that German okay. biker bar. But again, I, like I'd seen one to the last scene. I had a big smile on my face through the whole thing and I just had a great time with it and it moves well too. It, yeah, and it's, it's, it's funny, but it's not really jokey. It's yeah. uh, more situational. It's, it's not Bill and 
Tad comedy for sure. And it's not a Cheech and Chong movie. So don't get Unfortunately for the the young version of you that read it that day, it was not a Cheech and Chong movie. This is not up in smoke. But it's just Scorsese, I guess, could bring Cheech and Chong into this movie for two or three scenes. And that's what he likes to do. He likes to work with comedians. Uh, He has this history, even his mob movies, of just having some comedian have a a role here or there, like, like Ray Romano or whatever in The Irishman. Anything else on After Hours you'd like to say? I'm good. The world had been through a trial by fire, and only the greatest warriors and their deadliest enemies emerged from the flames. Who are you? Nobody. Understood. I can feel it. The dice are rolling. <laughs> he was the one they called mad. But he's just a raggedy man. But to those whose lives hung in the balance. Where's the whiting ones? Waiting for what? Waiting for you. He was the one they called hero. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. Now, Mad Max is back in Beyond Thunderdome. This is the first Mad Max movie I've reviewed, and it's, again, the least known Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. This is a movie from 1985. George Miller, who's directed all of them, he co-directed this one. I think he was kind of dealing with the loss, uh, the death of a friend or something. And so he was responsible for the action sequences. Those are the ones that he directed. And his co-director is George Ogilvie. And, and so they work together on this. I've heard mixed before going into it. I hadn't really watched this one before i'd heard mixed things i heard it's the weakest of the mad max movies for a number of reasons so maybe i had very low expectations which is funny because i had high expectations for fury road and i unfortunately i want to revisit that one because i didn't have a good time or i ate that day yeah i'm the only person in the world who has had problems with that one and maybe it was just the expectations i had were i was looking for a different movie than what it actually was you thought Uh, you was going to be in it I was happy that I was able to sit down and watch this and actually enjoy it, even though it it has its problems. But I think for a post-apocalyptic movie, which is the third in the series, you could do a lot worse than Beyond Thunderdome. This is the last time Mel Gibson plays Mad Max. He's left for dead in an unforgiving desert in post-nuclear Australia. And he ends up going to this kind of market town outpost, middle of uh, this this wasteland. So realm of this autocratic queen anti-entity played by Tina Turner and one of the weirdest bits of casting I've ever come across but you can get away with anything in the Mad Max movies and, and that makes sense. There there's a lethal challenge that waits for Max who in return for his freedom and provisions which were uh, stolen from him and he needed back, he must engage in a bloody match to death with the grotesque symbiotic being the Master Blaster. <laughs> Yeah. However, in an unforeseen complication after the fight in the Stronghold's combat arena, the Thunderdome, Max gets banished into the vast wilderness only to discover the peaceful haven of the Lost Tribe, which is kind of like the Lost Boys in Peter Pan or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, a community of marooned children who survive on their own, waiting for the arrival of the legendary Captain Walker, who has a resemblance to Mad Max. And they feel, think he's uh, their god or their savior that will get them out of their situation 
situation. And he then has to recruit them to overthrow Barter Town's ruthless tyrant. And this movie has the set pieces you would expect, the action sequences. There's a great one with a train. Remind me of WWF, speaking of 80s, that giant cage match to the death that they have in the middle. I'm a bit of a sucker for those. That They, they have some of that in like John Carpenter's Escape from New York and, and movies like that. So I had a lot of fun with it. I think probably if I was to pick out a weakness, it would have to be Tina Turner, unfortunately. And I hope you can defend her performance. I mean, she's not really an actor. Her music is great. I like the songs. We Don't Need Another Hero was the big song connected to this movie. But, you know, some of her line deliveries are a bit wooden. And I don't know. I thought she was kind of an odd choice for this. Yeah, that's movie. what I wrote down. Odd casting choice. Yeah. <laughs> if she was okay, I guess. But I think I felt like she was cast so they could use a couple songs by hers because she was big at the time. And probably. I, I don't yeah. know if she's done any other acting or not other than this, but nothing that I've got on my shelf. But I don't know. I think we might, we might, I didn't really have fun with this one. No, you disagree on this one? Okay. Yeah, this is this. I think this where we might have some issue. I mean, it's it's Mad Max and then the Road Warrior. Yeah, this isn't in that caliber. I'm not saying that. They, yeah. The thing is, they, they took away the thing that made these films exciting. And to me, that's the road. <laughs> and then, and they corrected that with Fury Road, where they made the whole friggin' movie was the road. So, <laughs> and I feel like it's it's an adventure film, but I'm not sure I would call this an action movie. It's, I don't know, I, it just didn't really get me. It, about 47 minutes into the movie, it becomes a little WTF is what I wrote down. It, it, you're right. <laughs> that's when I start to really tune out of the movie because it becomes, it's being told about Max and these kids. And I just feel like, what am I watching now? Like, are we going to go back to this other movie, which was a little bit more interesting? Uh, you know, the Thunderdome fight was sort of, you know, these guys fighting in essentially jolly jumpers. It, it was something. Yeah. But, you know, there was that one fight scene and then, you know, they get rid of him. Max doesn't, I don't believe Max kills anybody in this movie. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it, That's you know, look. I mean, if he kills people, it's it's almost accidental. Right? Yeah. He, he doesn't but, want to kill the, the, the big, when he realizes, and again, this is probably only in the 80s that you would have this, that this big character who he's battling, who has that small person on top of him. Which I, I just think that was so inventive. Uh, like, <laughs> but, but when the, the mask is off, we realize, I, I think, the, the, the guy's Down syndrome or something. He seems something's a little bit challenged with him. Or, yeah, and, and so then Max doesn't want to kill this guy when, when he realizes that. So I, I feel the first half hour, 40 minutes, had potential to be interesting. Okay. Uh, but then it becomes Hook. and Yes, and Hook it was exactly what I thought of, yeah. And I wrote down, Mad Max, instead of being this you know adventure hero, he became a reluctant baby sitter and the longer it went on the more i forgot about the movie i was previously watching and my favorite part of the movie is when max punches that little girl in the face because i wished at that point he was going to go punch all these kids in the face and just go back to the thunderdome and like do the best part of the movie but i, I don't know uh and then finally after he leaves wonderland with these kids there's about a four-hour scene of them walking through the desert and it with I the don't monkey, know. by the way we should mention the monkey there's this monkey that sort of <laughs> yeah. saved mad max and then the monkey Monkey somehow survives and <laughs> continues to be a part of the movie. Oh man, I I, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm just pointing out negatives, but I'll, I'll continue. Yeah, keep oh. going. <laughs> 
But there's a positive. We get to, arguably to me, the only action sequence in the film is when it has flashes of the Road Warrior again. Yeah. Back when the road, the cars start hitting the roads. Okay, oh, this is what we're, we're going to watch now. But at that point, I feel personally, I feel like it wasn't the same for you, but I, I no longer cared at that point. I, it was an hour and 23 minutes before that happened. And there was 20 minutes left in the film and only 10 minutes of that was a road chase. And that's what, what yeah. I was eating my popcorn to want to wanna watch. And I, I just mm-hmm. wasn't interested anymore. And I just found it myself really annoyed every time the children would talk of tomorrow Morrowland. I hated that part. <laughs> it's just like, stop talking yeah. about tomorrow Morrowland. My biggest problem is, is the first, second, and third act just don't mesh together. And yeah, three um, movies. yeah, and you know, there's there's scenes during the underground breakout of Border Town with the music and the sound effects. It just seems like a happy Goonies style adventure. Like it's Goonies style violence. You know, they're swinging on ropes and it's you know happy music yeah. and they're sliding down things going whoa and I, I just i like the goonies i mentioned the goonies yeah. stories talk about anything but not in a mad max movie i, I did write down here mad, max wasn't very mad i wrote that down. <laughs> the kids do most of the damage max i don't believe kills anybody himself even lets the big villain at the end tina turner she, they they let each other live and that ending i don't I know that's bizarre yeah i have that down as a big weakness with the end spoilers yeah, it's what, what, yeah i guess that is a bit of a spoiler hope that's okay but uh, <laughs> but yeah so max is down on the ground he's you know she comes up to him this is are we gonna have one last standoff fight she smiles and says uh, hey raggedy man goodbye soldier and she laughs and and leaves and that's the last we see of them and then we get another story time that's right we had story time with about tomorrow Morrowland and captain yeah. walker was it captain walker yeah yeah okay not to get off on a rant here but i already did no I, there that that's how i felt about the movie in yeah. a nutshell i, I don't want I, just, I don't want to oversell it and I don't think we're we're in different places with the movie but I'm not going to get passionate about this movie because I think maybe it was just more like I, I like getting lost in a movie where I have no idea where it's going and you're right it is like three different mini movies in one and maybe it was a script that was cobbled together half-heartedly and they just took different ideas and put them in there and yeah the, the second act does totally remind me of Hook and probably my least favorite part of Hook by the way so the second act I am in total agreement with with you on I I could do without that I think it was just I was just trying to get my head around with this tribe of children and this monkey I, I kept I was so focused on this monkey for some reason and where this monkey came from and why why this monkey helped right. Max out and then like okay anything's possible after this and then he wants to go in by himself to to deal with barter town but no these children insist on going with him and then he has to sort of train them to be soldiers and they do the bulk of the work i think the first act and the third act yeah it's not really a road as much it's train tracks and then there's a plane and it's in the sky and there's interesting stunts done there which i think almost felt like they were preparing for years later for fury road because there was i I, and i like the set like the, the children are so fascinated by you know modern culture and they find this old vinyl record which was and start playing it and it's french lessons yeah and they start, they're so fascinated by this, they're trying to learn French with it. It's like there's a few touches in there that I went along with it. And it, again, I had such low expectations that uh, when I was expecting one of the worst things I ever saw, and it wasn't the worst, <laughs> then I almost got it to the point where I'm giving a mild recommendation to it. But it's it, it's nuts. I mean, I just, and I know the whole series is nuts in one way or the other. I think you're right. The big fans of the Mad Max films will have the biggest problems with this one because 
because it goes kind of against what the other movies were about. Yeah, your points are all valid. I, I just, this is one where I was expecting to be fighting it the whole time and, and the brain just went over into the other room and I just watched all this. Just Who comes up with these ideas? It's, it's just ridiculous. And all the pigs that were used in there too, by the way, and like that whole world was was interesting. I mean, there's a little bit of a, a strange, uh, I haven't talked about too much yet, but sub-theme with Among These Movies, there's a lot of references to shit. And this movie has a lot of dialogue, particularly in the first part. Oh, yeah, yeah, with the pigs and... and stuff. And I, I just, again, I'm not, I find that kind of the, the easiest joke or the lowest common denominator. And it's, this is, you know, not the last movie we're going to be talking about where, where this is used as kind of some sort of a plot point. So all of that, I, I wasn't as thrilled with. And Tina Turner's villain, I feel like there would be some sort of an interesting story about that character. But mm-hmm. I can now probably think of 20 other actors who would have just made a meal out of that performance, that character in that performance. And it would have elevated this picture because it's she seems kind of like a, a weaker villain in some ways They're, she's having other people do stuff for her kind of like max is having the kids and other people fight for him and that's perhaps the problem but if you're looking for something that's just nuts and is could only be made in the 80s it is beyond thunderdome i have uh, a question for you about sure. so master blaster i guess right is that what he was called the little person i guess we called him <laughs> that was on the back he's the same person then that they had on the train at the end who's now wearing a he's wearing a three-piece suit and they're friends now is that yeah he was helping them out yes well i just wanted to make sure because at some point he's wearing a, a brand new clean suit and i i didn't see a point during the escape when he could have changed from his his shit cleaning suit to you know like he was wearing you know the full vest yeah, and yeah he was he was in with the pigs and he was nearly and, killed and now they're like all best friends with him and uh they didn't know i i started going, wait maybe that's not the same guy no it has to be the same guy yeah it, it, it makes no sense he's dressed that way you're absolutely right I was just going like, okay, whatever at this point. The Lost Boys and Mad Max take on <laughs> Tina Turner and yeah, on a plane. And a plane. Advent, yeah. Mad Max, Adventures in Babysitting. Yeah. Mad Max, Adventures in Babysitting. That would be- Maybe this was their way of Mad Max having his own Night from Hell movie. Those darn kids. <laughs> Yeah, and those kids are. Uh, there's one one kind of interesting character. Who was the one? There was the one that was holding Bugs Bunny for some reason too. Remember that? Oh yeah, that was the he was mute or something because he never spoke, did he? Yeah, or? yeah. That, I don't the Bugs Bunny. Yeah, thing, Bugs right? Bunny I guess they were all interested in toys from what would have been the '80s. Or I kept going like, what? So I guess him and, and then there was uh, the one other kid who was had a little bit more personality, but they weren't memorable characters. And, He's also yeah. the one that uh, hit one of the bad guys with a frying pan, and it made that big cartoon. Any thong sound. Well, I feel like we're going circles on Mad Max Thunderdome. Is there anything else you'd like to say about it? It, may, it might not rate, too, I might not give it too, too many points. Yeah, I, I'm getting that <laughs> sense, and that, that's fine. This is Jack Burton in the Pork Chop Express, and I'm talking to whoever's listening out there. It's a pretty amazing planet we live on here, and a man would have to be some kind of fool to think we're all alone in this universe. There is a hidden world where ancient evil weaves a modern mystery. What's going on here? Is this some kind of... Magic. The darkest magic. They call it Little China. Finally, we shall bring order out of chaos. It's where big trouble was waiting for Jack Burton. Who? Jack Burton, me. Jack. Jack. Jack! 
they told him to go to hell. He make one move. And that's just where he's going. Somebody, I don't care who, tell me what is going on. How are you going to spring us? I have no idea. Like my entire life, I've been trying to catch up to John Carpenter. To this point, I unfortunately I haven't seen a John Carpenter movie in a. No, that's a lie. I saw Escape from L.A. in the theater. But other than that, most of his movies I've watched on DVD or VHS. And I, I want to watch all of them. And Big Trouble in Little China, I think that the time that I heard about it, it was a, a certified cult hit. And I we have, again, I, I think Larry really likes it. Lee Beckman, who I, I'm sure you also know, really, really loves this movie. I like it a lot. I would love to be in a position where I could say that this, I find it a great movie. I find it a very good movie. It's history. It was a box office failure, but I think it came out just before or around the same time Aliens came out. And this has been like the story of John Carpenter's career. I mean, the thing goes against E.T. and Big Trouble in Little China goes against Aliens. Like always going against the biggest box office movie. Big Trouble in Little China is a movie that could have only been made in the 1980s because it definitely another one where i have no idea where it's going from moment to moment and it is so much fun and a big part of that fun is kurt russell who i i just love kurt russell i've always enjoyed him i don't care what the movie is if it's a serious action movie or if he's playing some fbi guy in some drug detective movie i i was even happy to see him in vanilla sky which i ripped apart with larry in a review a few years ago yeah he's even fun to watch in like a a romantic comedy or a santa claus movie it's like it's yeah. Kurt Russell or uh yeah. The movies he did with Goldie Hawn in the 80s. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just a... And he's, you know, he's in a lot of Carpenter movies too. And, yeah. you know, Carpenter's one of my favorite directors. And you're right, an 80s retrospective type podcast wouldn't be right with a Carpenter movie. And You have to have um, one in there. So if for those who haven't checked out, first of all, I'm going to say, see Big Trouble in Little China. If you haven't, even if you don't like 80s movies, I think there's something to cling on to here. Or, or even just so you see it so that you have an opinion on it. I think that's important. It's about a truck driver named Jack Burden who arrives in Chinatown and first of all I have to ask are you going to try and somehow explain this movie I'm using the IMDB storyline okay this is not my words this is somebody from Rio de Janeiro has written up a apparently a synopsis of this that I'm going to use right now only reason that I ask is my wife I tried to get her to watch it and uh, Mm -hmm. and I I, spoiler I'm going to gush about this film but she asked me what is it about and I said I can't I can't tell you it that this film defies description what I'm going to do is I'm I'm going to cheat. I'm going to take the IMDb away from me. I'm going to, I'm going to try. I told her it's a Kung Fu action comedy fantasy monster adventure film. You've got it right there. <laughs> but you go, you go. Yeah. Well, Kurt Russell plays Jack Burden, who's this truck driver. His truck gets stolen in San Francisco's Chinatown and he wants his truck back and him and his Chinese sidekick, who is way, way, way more competent than, than Burden <laughs> is in every single facet of the mystery that unfolds. They try to get the truck back, but they have to defeat all of these different gods connected to Chinese mysticism. In there, there's a bunch of other characters, and this is where I get go a little bit sideways, but Canadian Kim Cattrall shows up as a bit of a love interest. She's this lawyer who's trying to protect this woman who's coming from China who has green eyes, and this is who this 
ancient god, the head of the gods, wants to marry because Chinese women or women with with hazel eyes or green eyes are have some sort of a power that that he wants and is key to this old man coming back to life and being a, a young man. And so that's kind of the setup, but it's it involves brothels, it involves lawyers, and it's 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 yeah, it, it is so hard to explain. It's a movie that I would say watch and enjoy, and it's John Carpenter at his weirdest. You know, it's not my favorite John Carpenter movie, but it certainly is one where he's employing different skills than in his horror movies or in his post-apocalyptic movies. This is, you know, set in contemporary times and in contemporary times of 1986 when the movie came out, but he is balancing a whole lot of elements. So it's funny and it's an action movie and there's Kung Fu and there's so much, so much fun to be had in the movie. I don't know what is exactly stopping me though from being as excited about it as I am to watch Halloween for the 300th time or to look at the Escape <laughs> movies or uh, even to take a look at like something like In the Mouth of Madness, one of the, the 90s Carpenter oh, movies. I like it a lot. I think Kurt Russell's my favorite part of the whole thing, but I'm ready to hear you gush and to tell me why this should be among my favorite movies of all time. Well, it, it's probably his most most fun Carpenter's most fun film. I mean, my yeah. favorite Carpenter is probably the thing personally. Yes. But this, one, this one is just uh, you're right. You just put it on and just let it happen and just smile the whole time. And, and I feel if there's not something in this movie to please you, then you don't have a soul. <laughs> but there's this awesome. whole, <laughs> there, there's there's so much going on in it and you don't even have time to question anything you just because you're learning all of this crazy information at the same time as our hero jack burton and uh and so much gets thrown at him so fast and he's always asking questions trying to understand he has no idea what's going on and uh, let's talk about the character of jack burton just yeah. first of all the name jack burton it just sounds such a truck driving yes. uh, american name and uh, it's a great character he's loud brash kind of rough around the edges the loud mouth macho guy with the corny lines speaks with that john wayne kind of drawl yeah it was intentional he's yeah. done this more than once like kurt russell does a good john wayne impression he, does. he uses john wayne a bit uh, i'm not sure which order the show was going to appear but recently with lee i reviewed the hateful eight and <laughs> he was like doing the john wayne thing in that movie as well but in both cases i really like it so I like the way that he really believes that he is the hero of this movie. And for the most part, he's pretty ineffective, but he really believes he's the hero and that he's the action hero and that he's going to save the day and uh, everyone follow me. I mean, he does eventually kill the the big bad guy, but for the most part, Dennis Dunn, his, his co-star plays his friend Wang. He's the, he's the actual action hero, but yeah, it's, it's absurd and, and fun and they throw so much at you. And just every line that Jack Burton says, I smile. And I just, yeah. I love his delivery because he's so oblivious to it. And That's why the movie gets away from being the white savior movie. There's so many movies that get criticized because he's so incompetent. <laughs> And yet he's so confident in what he does. And there's something really charming about that. I think and you mentioned Kim Cattrall plays Gracie. I don't watch a lot of Kim Cattrall movies, so I don't know. <laughs> it's not my thing. Her, her biggest but, thing is Sex in the City. But uh, she does well as far as like she's asked or she's her in uh, Wang. They're, they're throwing back and forth really quick to each other. Mm-hmm and information information this back and forth and it's really done well and jack burton's a step behind just trying so hard just to keep up and wait a minute what are you talking about here what what's this now and there's something 
and I know it's intentional, intentionally stiff about Kim Cattrall's line delivery. Like it's almost like she's in a screwball comedy from the 30s. Yeah. I've tried to figure out, maybe this is part of my journey of trying to move from liking it a lot to, to loving it, is why that decision was made. There's a little bit of a rescue thing that happens, but she does fight. She does put up a fight. So it's not a damsel distress type of a role. I talk about the, the comedy. It, it is very funny. I don't know if it's a flat out comedy, but it's because it's not, you know, set up punchline necessarily, mm. but it's more just this guy in this situation and it's crazy and now this is happening. And I think, you know, the, the delivery of Jack's lines are just, you know, I don't know. I find it, I find it hilarious, but if I could see some people watching this being confused and wondering, mm-hmm. like, why is this funny? I don't understand why you think this is funny. It's not, but to me, it, it is very funny. Um, and it's one of the most entertaining 90 minutes I could imagine having, but uh, yeah, I could see not. some people, especially if they're like not big on letting anything happen because it's the eighties and saying, I, I don't understand why you're having so much fun with this. Then I might just, you know, ask them to leave my house, but uh, <laughs> I do want to point out one specific moment because I was watching it with my wife and my wife doesn't love all the movies that I love about an hour in this movie Gracie gets captured by a hairy big fanged monster yes and it's a very 80s looking monster which yeah. which I adore but yeah. that happened and my wife shrugged and she she looked at me and she said why <laughs> Why? And yeah, I just looked out of nowhere. This creature came out of nowhere. And I looked back at her and I just smiling and I said, why not? Why not make it a monster movie as well? Because it's the 80s. That's why. Like um, he's sort of incorporated every single genre into one movie. And maybe that's part of it. I, I, I think that the, the soulless people that you were referring to that don't have a good time <laughs> with this are the ones who are maybe used to a formula for their movie watching. And yeah. this doesn't follow any sort of formula and it overtly blends a whole bunch of different genres and styles together. And it's it's weird. And those who don't like weird movies, they like cookie cutter movies. Those are the ones that are probably going to be like, this is too weird. I don't want to sit through this. But really they should because I, I mean, I don't care at the end if you don't like it, but I want you to give the movie a chance is is, is what I'm saying. I'm being hard on I mean, obviously I'm exaggerating. You, if you don't no, like it, you, you, might, you might have a soul still because you're right. Some people, it's not their thing. They want to the romantic comedy. Or, yeah. This is too too weird or crazy, but it's it's exactly my kind of film. So yeah. uh, it, it caters to me and, and maybe not to everybody else. And I, I can I can definitely see that. But you're not alone. I mean, it's is, it is, it, it's big. Like If it wasn't for the fact it was up against aliens which is that much more of a 80s classic i i would say there's a little bit of a revisionist thing where the thing is viewed much more favorably than et the extraterrestrial yeah if it had been a different movie that had been the box office more of a you know uh sentimental spielberg type of thing that beat it out we'd be going oh big tr- tr- trouble in little china was the movie of 1986 and that's the one that should have had the millions of dollars I feel like the fact that it's a cult movie and a lot of Carpenters that that's led into this time where those who love his stuff have made movies like this mainstream now. And I, I didn't see this in 86 when it came out. This was one I kind of caught up a little bit later. The 80s had passed by then. Yeah. So for me, it was kind of a treat being able to go back to the 80s and see one that somehow had passed me because it wasn't a big deal when it came out. People kind of overlooked it. And uh, and I guess I was one of those at that point too. We said, no, I'm going to go see Aliens and forget this other weird film. And I missed out on it at that time, but uh, I sure love discovering it later. And wow, 
oh, what a, what a film I missed. We talked about the monster. There was a, and that's the, not the only time a monster shows up as well. There's another one mm-hmm. that, that I love. It pops out of a cave and eats somebody with zero warning, completely out of the blue. And Jack just yells, what, what, what? And then egg, he starts casting a spell, be gone. And, it will not come back. And, and Jack's just confused this whole time. <laughs> What's ha- And I'm just smiling. There's there's another scene I love was big, before the big confrontation, they drink some sort of potion, which I'm not never really been sure. Was it just liquor or, or what it was? Because they said, what does this do? And he goes, big buzz. And just that scene in the elevator, in the elevator down, they're just chill. And they're, they're yeah. smiling, saying how, no, I don't feel pretty confident right now. I'm not even scared. And, and it's a weird moment because they kind of like touching each other. And, and then Lopan. What a great villain. It's <laughs> so goofy yeah, and fun. I think the, the best way to describe, you get everything. If you want to know Jack Burton, this character, the scene that paints him the best is one scene when he's talking tough to Lopan while he's got lipstick smeared all over his mouth and on his teeth. And, and he's talking tough, but he looks ridiculous. That scene is Jack Burton. And, and that right there. And that's, I mean, it's hilarious to me. And then you got a big climatic fight with flying, kicking, weapons, and magic. And Jack spends most of the time trying to get the one bad guy he killed off of him. He's just yeah. heavy. And- I also like uh, another Burton moment I like is when he knocks himself out. Oh, yeah. 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 That was like kind of like a slapstick moment, right? Yeah. Uh, I egg, right? Uh, the guy goes around doing tours of Chinatown in San Francisco, played by B.D. Wong. And he, he was also in Tremors, the uh, owner of the uh, the grocery and restaurant there in Tremors. I just love that guy. There, there's something that he's one of those pieces. He, like, he starts the movie in, and this is a, feel free to defend this to me, because this was a tacked on scene. We have that scene in the lawyer's office with him, and we get the impression yeah. the story's told in flashback through that interaction, but it sits there, isn't referred to afterwards and it, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense that no much. they don't they don't really go back to it hey eh? just no. it starts jack burton is or we owe a gratitude attitude gratitude to jack burton and they just then they tell the story of what the happened studio said that people wouldn't know that jack burton was supposed to be the protagonist or the hero of the movie and then that scene was tacked on to try to make it seem like he is but it seems like a bad studio decision and it just doesn't Maybe, yeah. fit with the rest of the movie there if we're stretching to find some flaws with this yeah movie. kind of just a setup and i mean in the end and it's funny all this crazy stuff is happening and really jack just wants his truck back that's all he wants and money. He <laughs> i just want yeah you owe me two thousand dollars for this gambling and but that, that's about it yeah. we didn't even mention the guy that starts spontaneously expanding and exploding just because he finds out his his, his boss is dead you know it, it literally makes zero sense and i i don't know how you defend that scene like but, but it's, it's there and it's a, it's a good time like what you don't know from scene to scene what you're gonna get yeah. that's why it's but, such a hard movie to explain Jack has a great exit as well. I mean, it's, you know, usually the hero gets the girl and this one, he's like uh, just leaving and they say, aren't you going to kiss her goodbye? And he just turns to the camera and says, nope. And then <laughs> nah, movies don't end that way. So no, I, I, I love that. Every it's- cliche you can think of is broken. That's what makes it enjoyable. And all the stuff we're talking about and, and like all, all the things you're throwing, I often forget it's a 90 minute movie. Yeah. You know, there, there's a lot of stuff per minute in this film that it feels yeah, like we... enough material for a four hour movie, but it's it's 90 minutes and it, it moves fast. You know, that's again, Carpenter's very good at that. Like he, he knows how to pace a movie really well. And this one moves fast from the only moments of kind of where it's 
slows down a bit are, are almost at the beginning and the end where Jack is on his radio and doing that kind of weird... Yeah, the Pork Chop Express, all in the reflexes. I like it and I feel like I'm going to get to the place where I am going to love it more I watch it. I've just, I've watched it a few times and like everybody that's kind of in the movie nerd world that I'm in loves this and thinks... Some might actually say it's... I don't think it could beat the thing, though. I, I don't understand that argument, but some, there are people that think it's Carpenter's best, and maybe just because he had to work with a completely different type of a film than he had made previously or since, really. Yeah, it's got a little everything. It's a lot of, there's a lot of ideas and crazy 80s absurdity and humor that works. There's great fight scenes, too, and monsters, really and a wise-ass Kurt Russell at its finest, and... Uh, all those ingredients are there. I mean, there's a fight scene when they're all Jack and Wang are sitting inside the truck and all this whole fight is happening in there, around them. And they're just witnesses to this. They're not even taking part from we're watching it happen. And then the magic starts and the three storms, I think they're called come down and yeah. everything is happening in there. Like now what's happening. I think this came up before mortal Kombat, and then mortal Kombat <laughs> used the designs of those three storms yeah. for characters for their video game. Cause I, again, every time I see them like mortal Kombat, wait, but no, no, which one, came first it had some sort of influence even though it, it was really under the radar that year and I, i'm big right now to try and find these movies and almost rescue them from obscurity and and this one it didn't take too long i think it was vhs home video rentals led to its success if that hadn't yeah. been in place in the the later part of the 80s it could be another one of these movies that forgotten about or discovered way too late i figure that you would you'd love it a lot but i'm happy to hear you talk about it is there something you see as a flaw if you're to pick out one thing um not not for me other than maybe for some i, I don't know i nothing stands out to me as, as a flaw in this i just really enjoy this film it, it's it's just too good a time maybe through other eyes i guess if if you just can't get around all the craziness then perhaps for that person that would be a flaw saying well i don't understand why is there magic now and and all the magic it goes back to the chinese the history and that it's all in there but i i just me i just let it happen and my wife didn't enjoy it as much as me and that that's fair enough she like i said why is there monsters now it's because there is and that's good enough for me. that was good enough for me but if that's not good enough for you then you're, you're gonna have some issue probably yeah i, I, I don't it's not based it's not based on a true story so don't need to be looking for realism in this movie just sit back and enjoy the ride and as you said for you this is a perfect movie and that's great i i have those movies too where i have to push myself for this show to try to come up with and sometimes my flaw is really more as you said more about how other people would react to it as opposed to how i myself reacted to it yeah, yeah. you know there you're right i usually do try and find something to point out as a negative but i'm taking a look here and all the negatives are kind of like things i love about it but I, again i don't know if it's a perfect movie but it's it's very enjoyable and sometimes that's just kind of what you want a movie to be. I, I might have taken that first scene out of the movie and just go go without it. But if so, if something it doesn't add anything, you're right. There's some other things that just don't add up, but they are just so much fun to see. Yeah. Everything and the kitchen sink and you know different rooms in the house were thrown into this movie. So people need to check out Big Trouble in Little China. You know, it's not a bad idea. What? Making a girl. Actually making a girl. This is Wyatt and Gary. I give her one digits memory glance. Something's about to change their world. Something out of this world. She's alive! Alive! What would you little maniacs like to do first? It's all in the name of science. Weird science.
If you want to be a party animal, you have to learn to live in the jungle. Not us. Not here. No way. She is turning their lives. Trust me for once, will you? What is going on? Gary, I don't know. You I don't know. Their minds. <laughs> and their house. Upside down. It's seriously affecting your sex life. <laughs> it's completely unnatural. Do you realize it's snowing in my room? Totally unbelievable. What's going on? And definitely weird. Hi, dudes. They went from zeros to heroes in one fantastic weekend. I'm so good. Universal Pictures presents a John Hughes film, Weird Science. It's purely sexual. It wouldn't be an 80s show without a John Hughes movie. This guy did so much for teenagers and young people with the films that he made throughout the 80s. And we're reviewing 1985's Weird Science. And it had some actors that he had worked with before, some up-and-comers. There's a lot of very familiar faces, which I had in kind of the plus column for this movie. And essentially the premise is these two nerdy teenage boys who don't know anything about women decide to use a computer to create what they view as the perfect woman. And then this woman, in fact, comes to life and then takes them on this journey of trying to create confidence in themselves so that they can approach girls in the future. So the entire thing is basically in a fantasy for adolescent boys. The problem for me, this is the one I said where my arms were lost. I had seen it before and and I actually reviewed it for Rank and Review. And somehow in this second viewing, I liked it even less. It has the sexism and the racism that you would expect. But again, I can perhaps auto-correct for some of that if the material was better than this. I guess the only good news in like looking up some stuff to try to find some positives is John Hughes had a deal with the studio that he wasn't really wanting to direct this. He wrote the screenplay in three days and it shows. He agreed to direct it so they would let him have his passion project. His passion project was The Breakfast Club, which couldn't be more different than Weird Science. Other than seeing young Robert Downey Jr. and young Bill Paxton make appearances in this movie, as well as there's an actor from The Road Warrior and that tall guy from The Hills Have Eyes. Michael, uh, Michael Berryman. Yeah, and those kind of cameo appearances in there. Other than that, I don't have a lot of nice things to say about Weird Science. I almost feel bad about it because, but I think it's because I expect more from John Hughes. Maybe because it's John Hughes, if this was some first-time filmmaker or some independent filmmaker on a shoestring budget and came up with something that was this outrageous, which could only this movie could only be released in the 1980s, like a lot of these, I might be a little bit more forgiving. But there's talent behind mm-hmm. it, and I feel like the talent is wasted. So please tell me that I'm wrong. Well, no, I think we're we're close, and and I think yeah, it takes about seven minutes for this movie to become completely unbelievable, and I think. <laughs> and, and that will affect your enjoyment but I, 
and to and I said this to my wife as well, and this is I wrote to accept everything in this movie. This is how you have to deal with it. This movie does not take place here. This movie takes place in a faraway magical land called the '80s, where anything is possible. And so, if you have that in your mind, you accept anything that happens, and you get through it easier. Now, having said that, it still might be too much. There's an audience of today would have a hard time watching this movie for the first time if you've never seen this movie before. Uh, you know, a young twenty year old saying this what's weird science they would i don't think they would get into this i was raised on it so i was the age of these kids Mm -hmm. in the movie when i seen it the first time so i didn't realize anything was offensive i didn't realize that this was wrong because it was a teenage fantasy and i i was those guys yeah what's wrong with making a girl out of a computer and then making out with her and showering with her that sounds fine to me but now looking at it as an adult there were a lot of moments where i was kind of cringing thing like oh this is not not good but and i guess that's what an adolescent male not i mean it's coming from like a, a heterosexual point of view which again most 80s movies were but but like a straight adolescent male would have this kind of fantasy i suppose and might act that way so i can maybe you know survive some of those scenes what i can't survive is okay their first night they go to a chicago blues club and anthony michael hall by the way he ref- uh he chose this role over being in uh national lampoon's Euro- european vacation which then yeah. led them to always recast rusty and audrey for all of the sequels after that kind of wish he had picked European vacation maybe it's controversial to say that over weird science but he at one point starts drinking something and then he starts doing this awful impression of an old black blues man to a group of African Americans who are at this table with him his buddy and this computer woman that he's created yeah that's a hard scene really bad scene (laughs) that is a really, really bad, bad, bad scene. And I can't remember if that was funny when I was 13, 14. I, I, I was, but it, it definitely doesn't play well now. And I, I don't recall it even being good back then, the voice he uses. Uh, first of all, it's gratingly annoying. But yeah, he's definitely doing an impression, uh, a racial impression. That like This uh, is not like, okay, so Robert Downey Jr., who plays one of these bullies, he has, this is young Robert Downey Jr. He shows up in here. Robert Downey Jr. was in Tropic Thunder, where he played that method actor who's also <laughs> Australian and and got his skin changed so that he'd be black. That was now maybe it's unfair because Downey Jr. was much older and a much better and experienced actor than Anthony Michael Hall could have dreamt of being. But at that time, that's if you are going to be doing something like that, that's probably the approach. But it, it's I, I just can't even in the eighties, I can't see that as being yeah. something that would have worked. I, I would I'm very curious if I had a time machine. Well, there's lots of things I do with the time machine, but go back and and watch. <laughs> this movie with an audience to see how that scene played because I, I just don't see any situation where that was going to it, it's not no. it's not funny it's not well acted it, it's stupid but again people are accepting it because they're in the movie they're not in reality like all honestly this kid should be beaten up at the end of this night yeah but, exactly yeah. And, and, and i'm not, I'm not going to fault anthony michael hall for that because he was i think he was 15 at the time wasn't he um, he, he was an actual i think actual teenager like this yeah, was, so, he was good at having you know he's maybe not making you know that these decisions he's told this is what you do now in this scene do this and here's your payment for it and so he, yeah, he does what he's told so i guess um, we blame Hughes for the scene then uh he wrote the scene and he directed oh, he it, so. <laughs> and also what stands out in that scene 
scene when he's using the voice he talks and this is his words not mine he talks about an eighth grade girl with big titties is his quote and Mm -hmm. and i just watched it and that face you're making right now Mm -hmm. that's the face i I was like uh oh and i i i made a face and i don't usually like making faces i think i I actually forgot about that line (laughs) i entirely forgot about it until i came up and i i I really did not feel i thought eighth grade geez like no that's not in any world cool yeah that was uh that was tough it was it did not age well No, and and, uh, and shout out by the way you made you mentioned vacation if he was in vacation too i just yeah. also want to point out i'm on your side when you uh, review vacation it is uh, a great movie and larry was wrong so anyway i'm on your side on that so okay thank you yeah and so someday i'll re- review european <laughs> vacation as well because there's some that's the one of the apparently one of the bad vacation movies but i still think i, I would have liked to see him in in that and, and keep going with kind of the original family from national lampoon's vacation but but uh, i mean getting back to john hughes i mean you're right he was a, a huge part of the 80s he was just he was everywhere and and i was kind of at the right age to be his audience because yeah and it, this was such a strange step for him because everyone was saying, wow, he really knows how to write these kids and these characters. He understands the dialogue and realistic tone of high school. And then he just, this was a big swing. It says, Kate, forget all that. I'm going crazy now. This is probably the most pure 80s movie on this list, I think, as far as it could only be the 80s. You know, they create a girl out of a computer because computers do that. And and now she can, now she's magic and she can snap her fingers and cars appear and everything, everything is on the table. This, I don't know. It almost makes a big trouble in Little China make sense compared to this. It does. I, I was fighting the movie the whole time, and I love Bill Paxton, by the way. And oh, yeah, yeah. Paxton, this is like the best Bill Paxton character. He that's yeah, let's point something good. That's Bill Paxton here. Well, but what's done <laughs> to him is not good. I mean, I don't. I love every scene that Bill Paxton. You, like he's he is turned into a pile of shit by <laughs> this magical computer woman. Kelly LeBrock is her name. I think she was some sort of a playboy pinup or something i think that was how she got the role i i I don't know like she's she's actually all right as far as like grading on this very low curve her character is just pure exploitation i mean but yeah she she turns bill paxton into that for and that joke goes on way 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 too long i don't understand with the role i mean he's Probably, I would say the gives the best performance in the movie. I mean, you you love Bill Paxton, you hate Chet, but you lo- yeah. kind of love watching Bill Paxton play him because he's yeah. just such a... he puts his all into it. <laughs> he does. Yeah. And you mentioned Kelly LeBrock. Yeah, her that image of her standing in the doorway, her first reveal, mm-hmm. you know, where she's uh, wearing the the half shirt and then the bikini panties. That was a very strong image I recall in my youth. I remember when I was yeah. that age, I thought, you know what, guys, we should buy a computer. We should. Uh, <laughs> Weird thing, she was named Lisa after that computer that Steve Jobs created, the first Mac computer that was named after his daughter. I don't know. That's uh, just I'm trying to find (laughs) random trivia to throw in here, which is more interesting than the movie itself. I think so. Yeah, there were there were some jokes moments where uh, where they were still kind of a little bit wincy, but it's some of them worked. I still kind of laughed almost because of how inappropriate it felt. Uh, Some of them, like the stuff in the Blues Club, it was just. Like that, but other scenes where she's buying panties to turn on these boys, and she's asking this old lady, "If you were a fifteen-year-old boy, would these turn you on?" Uh And yeah, again, that's 
wrong, but and I think I, I think I laughed and I said, "Geez, this is wrong." And I, but I, I did laugh because of. I think you got to laugh in the eighties, though. I mean, that, that would be yeah, just to see the old person's reaction to. And, and I mean, she does the problem. The, the woman they create, she looks way older than these high school boys. Yeah, she her, was an adult woman. Yeah. Uncomfortable. The, the shower thing is uncomfortable, and everything she's saying about them because they look like legitimate teenagers. I'm they even look younger. On I'm looking at the uh, DVD case right now, and they look even younger than 15. They look like they're yeah. 11 or 12 years old here. It was that it was that rare thing where they would get kids to play kids, which is good. I like that. I, I like that Hughes would do that. I still do enjoy it a, a bit in its own way. I mean, it has not aged particularly well unless you have a love for uh-huh. it being a, a an 80s artifact. And and my wife even watched a bit of this, and then she actually left. She said, you know, this is just too much, and, and she left. Yeah. And, I think I'm with your wife on this one. And I think there there were certain moments I still kind of it reminded me of back when I watched it, because I, I got to think like Weird Science was not made for men in their 40s to watch in 2021. It was made for 15 year old boys in what 1985 one of my thoughts about the 1980s my criticism and I, this is where I don't want to get too negative or hurt people's feelings but it seems like 95% of the releases were made for 12 to 15 year old boys there wasn't a lot I mean John Hughes to his credit had some of his movies that did appeal to girls and had female protagonists that weren't treated in this the manner of the girls and, and this woman in weird science that's why I, I'm a a bit disappointed in this movie in his filmography when you know he has breakfast club and pretty in pink and 16 candles and you know and ferris day off my god what a great film about <laughs> teenagers and wanting to play hooky and questioning authority i mean he had so many great movies that this is just such a surprise to me i guess i i came to it very late you know full-fledged adult so maybe mm-hmm. you're right that's why i have my guard up over this one but watching it again i thought okay i'm gonna get it a little bit more I'm going to understand why this is kind of a a cult classic in the John Hughes canon, but I am completely lost. I, you know, even the the stuff that you're you're kind of pointing out as the positives, I can't kind of get behind. I I, I feel I, yeah. I don't want to be negative with reviews anymore like this. Like there was a time when I was like this, but I this one I just had such a tough time getting behind. I don't know. Yeah, yeah and and for sure it's going to be like that. If the first time you see this as a, is as an adult, then yeah. I, I agree you're you're going to be entirely that way. I'm just wondering how um, women felt about this movie when it came out, or if they were just kind of pretend that they liked it just so that. See, I I don't know because it is, and it's funny how aging really does make you look at things differently because I used to watch this movie a lot when I was young and I honestly didn't see it the same way I see it now and again that's because I was looking at it as a fantasy now I look at it as a, as a crazy weird thing I mean this adult woman is making out with 15 year old boys and it's and that was really disturbing me now having kids watching this but it didn't play that way when I was young now watching scenes where she's talking to Gary's parents about party being yeah. a regular teenage orgy with chips dips chains and whips I still laugh at that line but it's it's a, different, it's a different kind of laugh when i was young watching that, i go ha 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 now i'm like oh oh, oh ooh. more of an uncomfortable laugh like- the, the, weirdest, the weirdest thing about this film to me is to me the way i'll describe it is it's almost like an 80s movie not made in the 80s but like it's like john hughes somehow knew he was self-aware what the 80s would be known for years later it's mm-hmm. almost so 80s it's like a current movie that was based in the 80s almost mm-hmm. to excess like think the wedding singer or something like that where it's 
a, a current movie, but it takes place in the 80s. So they're doing all these 80s type things in it where you could just do anything. There's a song during the party that's played prominently by a band called Killing Joke. It's called Living in the 80s. To me, it's just like, it's like he knew this is going to be like the most 80s movie of all time. And we're even going to have this song where everyone in the party is dancing saying, living in the 80s. And to me, it's, it's just, it's strange. And if you cannot, if you do not love it, the only reason to love it, I guess, or even to like it is because it reminds you of when you saw it back then. Or being a John Hughes completist. And, and you're right, it is the odd duck in his catalog, isn't it? It's, it's very strange. I'd be curious to hear, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know your daughter, but how your daughter would react to this movie. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> My, she's, she's about the, like, how, how old is she? Is she about the age she's, of... She's or, 15. Or yeah, she's, older. she's 15, so she's the uh, the age of the kids in the movie. I, again, she has her guard up about the 80s stuff. I mean, yeah. and it's the most 80s yeah. movie we're talking about, then probably wouldn't go well. But That um, would be the test. Is, yeah. uh, to be what, I need girls' view on this, because sometimes my I get my male feminist thing going there, or teacher-father viewing of this type of thing, and, and then I, I'll have women who say, there's nothing wrong with that what's wrong with you yeah i think i could see my son liking it because he's got he's sort of of the 80s you know film and he's also young enough to probably not be offended by anything i used to never get offended but now i'm starting to you know you'd look at things and realize gee that's that was never right why is that (laughs) when why was that okay but one or two scenes and i guess the frustration is i just think some of it's beneath if martin scorsese was the name on the you know as the director of this film the person who i think is the greatest director of all time i would be questioning and criticizing Scorsese just as much and I'd probably be even more disappointed in it because when somebody like Spielberg has a, an awful film then I'm that much harder on it because it's Steven Spielberg. John yeah. Hughes to me I know it was for a window of time and the 80s were kind of his decade as a certainly as a director so when he was operating on all cylinders at this time to have this a movie that's this bad to me is just a a bigger disappointment than if this was some no-name obscure director maybe it's unfair that I put that kind of pressure on weird science but fair enough if it's an obscure director maybe you've never heard of the movie it's it's not getting the major release as it got I mean the guy to me he wrote it in three days and that makes sense to me me because he was allowing in the first draft be as creative and outrageous as you possibly can but then you have to go in and have some sort of an editing paring down process where you're like okay this this is too much let's ring this in and what is the message we're trying to send with this film and then you direct it but I think he just wrote it really fast and he worked on the project so he can make the breakfast club and if this led to the breakfast club I guess that's the the nice thing I have to say about weird science because the breakfast club is a great movie but weird science is is the opposite. When some wild-eyed eight-foot-tall maniac grabs your neck, taps the back of your favorite head up against a barroom wall, and he looks at crooked in the eye, and he asks you if you've paid your dues. Well, you just stare that big sucker right back in the eye, and you remember what old Jack Burton always says at a time like that. Have you paid your dues, Jack? Yes, sir, the check is in the mail. You're out of your mind, Wang. God bless you. <laughs> It's all in the reflexes. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm a reasonable guy, but I've just experienced some very unreasonable things. Depends on how you look at it. The hell it does. So somebody, I don't care who, tell me what is going on. The truth? I can take it. We don't know. This is gonna take Cracker Jack timing, Wang. Total concentration. You ready, Jack? 
I was born ready. Scott Lehman, thank you so much for being here, giving me some perspective and pointing out some positives. I, I, I actually, <laughs> going in, I want to like all of these movies, and I feel like in some ways, I unfortunately, I fight the 80s sometimes. I was alive through the entire decade. I lived every day of the 80s. But I always feel like I'm more of a 90s person. And I've carried that into adulthood, you know, where I'm a, the, the feelings that you're describing, I will pick up something which I know is completely awful, but was released in the 1990s because of the nostalgia factor. So I think that's very much how a lot of people feel about the 80s. But I yeah. would agree the outrageous creativity, even in the ones that I was negative about is is something that's so unique to that decade. Going through the points here, starting off with Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. How many points did you give it? Before I give away any points, I got to ask, because I have a movie collection myself and I'm kind of like scared a little bit because as a collector, I'm going to be partly responsible for you losing something. And that, and that sort of makes me sad a little bit. But is there a reason where you have to get rid of something and you just have run out of space or what? Yeah, I live in an apartment and it, it's gone out of control. Uh, I, I have... Some movies I have triplicates of, in fact. Oh, okay. But it was also, I, I wanted to do a podcast. I got addicted to it from being on Larry's show as a guest. And, and he's asked me this question. I think Lee Beckman's asked me this question as well about like why you have to give, you don't have to give movies away. You could just talk about them and just have a podcast like that. But it was a little bit of an angle on on this. And and I what, what I usually hope for is that good is done with these movies, but I, I leave it completely up to the guests. And I'm also a bit of a control freak, you know, I'm a school teacher. So letting my guests have a lot of say and power in this is part of that process. I, I understand that, that trepidation, but usually, once or twice I've been surprised where it's been a movie that really was not one that I <laughs> no. where, there's a, a, where there's a weird split or something that happens. So that's happened to me two or three times where it's kind of a painful, a painful loss, but I, I'm not sure if that's going to happen today or not. Well, let's see if I can get, help you get rid of your favorite movie <laughs> in your day or something. <laughs> that could happen. Yeah. We'll see. So 60, Bill and Ted. 60 points to split between the six movies. And you want to start with Bill and Ted? Yeah. Bill and Ted, I figure I'd give them 11 points. So that's their, their 10 plus one. And, and Friday uh, 13th, Jason lives. Friday 13th, it's going to get one more point than uh, Bill and Ted. We're getting 12 points. And that's probably a little bit biased because you're having me as your guest. And I'm I'm going to be the horror guy. And if there's a Friday the 13th movie on a list that I'm doing, there's no way you're getting rid of a Friday the 13th movie. Yeah. Watch, that's not happening. I would be very, very sad if that was my fault. Sorry. I also want to point out that is probably the best sixth installment of a franchise. It's got to be. Okay. Well, six, we run out of gas. They're just getting yeah. started still. After hours? Yeah. After hours, go 10. And, you know, probably, should, and it's, it gets its full 10. It, maybe it's just a little bit below Bill and Ted just because it's at its heart. It's a rather simple story, but it's it's told with uh, with great direction. But uh, it's also the, the least 80s-ish as we talked about. But yeah, um, yeah, it's still good. I still want to give it 10 points. Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Sadly, I did not enjoy Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome enough to give it any more than three points. Just three. I didn't really feel like watching it after I got halfway through. It just... <sighs> This doesn't do it to me. That's tough. I, I hate that. It's happened to me sometimes, either when I'm a guest on another show or for my own show as well. 
which is a, a sign, you know, a, there's a, a show I'm going to be doing with Larry pretty soon where I had a couple movies like that, where it was just like, could this just end? And well, I, I always hate doing that to guests though, because I, I want no. you to enjoy the movies that we're looking at. What, what made it a little bit worse is I actually watched it twice because I watched it and didn't enjoy it. And I thought maybe it's because it was late at night. So I watched it the next day. And I, was like, oh, I still didn't like it. And I thought, well, you know what? I was probably just tired. No, it wasn't <laughs> that. Now it's personal. That much time was taken up. But, well, I'll say you never have to watch it again. Big Trouble in Little China. I'm giving that the most. It's I got 16 points for that one. It's it's aged. I feel it's it's aged well. And ending off with John Hughes' Weird Science. I'm going to probably give it more points than you are just because uh, I, I'm being generous, I think, with eight points. It still carries some weight as a 80s reminder, but only for that reason, I guess. So for me, we're, we're going to have some different places and you can probably predict where the different places are going to be. Starting off with uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, I gave it nine points. I had a good time with it. It was nothing more than a good time. I, I watch it. I enjoy it. I, I'm interested to, to revisit Bogus Journey because that's a movie of I've only seen one time just to see how it holds up now. Yeah, uh, yeah, I had a good time. Similarly, I had a good time with Friday the 13th part six, Jason lives. I, I wish that the MPAA hadn't cut back or handcuffed the director because he had a lot of creative ideas, but I think we both enjoyed it. I, I gave it nine points, just like Bill and Ted's. I said After Hours is my favorite of these films, and maybe it's not an 80s movie. There's a few Linda Fiorentino's costume and hairstyle and a few <laughs> weird touches there are a little bit 80s, but it's not overtly 80s as some of these others are. But I, I gave Go ahead. Just, yeah, not as stereotypical 80s. No, not stereotypical. It has, it has touches of it, though, yeah. I gave it 20 points. So I I sometimes like to spread the love around, but I, I really sent a lot of love to this movie. And then Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, I had a much better time with it than you did, but I, I actually gave it 10. It exceeded my expectations, and maybe when I see it the next time, I will be very focused on the things that bothered you, and I will be like, <laughs> what was wrong with me that day that I gave it an average or, rating of 10? So, Or else, what's wrong with Scott? Why didn't he see how awesome it was when it got to Neverland? <laughs> I think your points as far as the franchise as a whole are, are very are legitimate. Big Trouble in Little China, I gave it 12. Respectable, above average. I had a good time with it. And I, I really wanted to cross the line into like that 15 to 20 range with it, which was to me where we're usually in the show. That's when it's a movie that I, I find great. I maybe I have moments where I'm fighting some of the absurdity. But yet I also, for every moment I'm fighting, there's like 10 moments where I'm just enjoying the ride. And so... Uh, people really need to check that one out. This is the first time I've had guests who have done this before, but this is the first time in the history of the podcast that I'm going to do this weird science I'm giving zero points to. I really, really have no time for this movie at all. So I may have stacked the deck here a little bit more (laughs) than I should have, but I I watch any one of the other five movies 20 times over than have to watch weird science again. There's another thing where I got it in a bunch of movies through some garage sale and uh, I decided to give it another chance and it was even worse. So where that leaves us is uh, the movie that got the most points due to my inflated 20 points is After Hours with 30, followed closely by Big Trouble in Little China with 28 points. Then Friday the 13th, 
Part six, Jason Lives, ended up in third place with 21 points, closely followed by Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure with 20 points in fourth place. Fifth place is Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome with 13 points. And the movie that's leaving my movie collection with eight, only eight points, all eight points uh, that you gave it, is Weird Science. So what would you like me to do with Weird Science? Hmm. Well, and five of those points were because of Bill Paxton. And mm-hmm. three were just because it, when I was young, I was a Michael Anthony Hall fan because of vacation. Yeah. But um, <laughs> what yeah, would you I'm like? A fan of him in vacation as well. well you're, you're, so you're, you, what grade do you teach? Grade 10? 9 through 12. Okay. Uh, is there a uh, computer lab in that school? There's a couple, yeah. I think a fun way to lose that movie would be if you were to hide it somewhere in a computer underneath a keyboard or something where one day some kid will just discover it and maybe they're going to go home and uh, do some weird science. Uh, I, I love that idea. <laughs> it might, maybe you don't want to do it in your school. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this is the second second time I've been asked to plant a movie somewhere <laughs> in my school. Going back to my Halloween episode where Saw was taken from my movie collection i was told to leave saw in the grungiest dirtiest uh, most disgusting room in my school so good idea that's what i'm gonna do and i hope somebody picks it up and they love it way more than i do uh, honestly to give zero points it, I, this is a movie i'm not sad to see go from my collection some of the others i i would have had a, a harder time with so yeah thank you again for being on here and uh, i i hope you'll come back again i i know you do lot, lots of shows for larry but I, i've really enjoyed this conversation and, oh, right on. Thank you. Um, and I, you mentioned some diff- different ideas. I can send. I, I think I sent you a whole bunch of shows, but I can send you more. I've got more shows than, than I could ever possibly have, which means I have a lot of movies, obviously, yeah. in my place. Not as many as Larry, but a lot. But yeah, hopefully you'll have a chance to come, come back to the Shelf Shedding Movie Show and, and be a guest again. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I want to do shout outs, as I always do. Of course, a big part for both of us. To Larry Parsons and Rankin Review, please check it out. I'm a guest on that show a lot. You're a guest on that show a lot, too. So much fun being on his show and and ranking the movies. This is a version of ranking them, but not exactly the same. Other friends of the show, uh, Lifetime of Hallmark, Kurt Fitzpatrick's podcast, where he and a couple guys uh, sarcastically review Hallmark or Lifetime movies. And Matt Bledsoe, who was on our last show, his podcast, Film Feast. Please check that out. It's a little bit less structured than Rank and Review or or this show. He he does different things every week. Sometimes they look at one movie. Sometimes they look at two. Sometimes they do a list-based show. Really fun show. I'm working my way through those. And so those are three uh, other podcasts for you to listen to. So until next time, as always, keep being kind to each other and be safe. And please keep supporting the movies, whether they are old or new. Thank you very much.